better, but I said, hey, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. Oh, It's the Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. We're in season two, covering the top 100 albums of the 1970s. And now your hosts, John, Josh, and Matt. From the bowels of society's depths, it's Combing the Stacks, season two, episode 27, believe it or not, 27. There are only 34 full episodes per season, so we are steaming. Barreling through to the end. Barreling through to the end. Like the Trans Europe Express over there. Josh making train sounds and, you know, going with the theme right here. This is John, and I am opening up and we'll check in soon with my podcast mates. Matt and Josh, but first, before I throw it to them, let me remind you that we are the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. We cover three albums at a time throughout six decades. It is a full episode tonight, so no cold listen hot take. You're getting a full bio and full response on three classic albums. Um, As always, you can check us out on 12 different platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Spotify, Google, Pocket Cast, Overcast, and many, many more. Um, on Twitter, we are at Combing the YouTube channel. Search for Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, and you can email us at CombingTheStacks at gmail.com. I got all the damn stuff out of the way to begin with. Now, I've talked too much. Let's hear from my friends on the other side of uh, the microphone. Matt, let's start with you. Age before beauty. How are you, bud? I'm good. I don't think I'm doing as well as Josh's though by how he was coming in hot uh, before we started recording. So, but I am good. Arasha Masse. Arasha Masse. Hey, I saw that. Arasha Masse. You can't say. Arasha Masse. Yeah, that's an Arrested Development. Not Arrested Development. I'm Curb sorry. Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, that's uh, that show still got it. But I'm feeling better. I must apologize for all the coughing I was doing last week. I I thought I was muting myself and I totally wasn't. So. Um, anybody that actually, I guess not many people listened last week, so that's probably good because I was like <laughs> coughing halfway through the thing. So, uh, been, but I'm better now. It's been rectified. You now know how to mute yourself. Yeah, Josh showed me how to mute, and really, all I do is push the microphone button on the recording feature. So, who would have thought? Well, to, to add two things to that, Matt yeah. certainly leaned into his uh, elder of the thing, speaking, I think, particularly yeah. to our yeah. sixty-plus dynamic there yeah. Uh, yeah. in terms of. Yeah. Groups and also we had a viewer comment asking if Matt had tuberculosis, which I mm. thought was a a funny of all the conditions. You know, my yeah. tuberculosis TB. seems like the least likely, but yeah, one, um, one that we're vaccinated against. Might yes. I add? Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> well, I just had you, the... you never know nowadays. It's so. <laughs> true. No, as far as I know, it's just a regular run of the mill, you know, cold. Um, and uh, I lost my voice. That's why I had, we had to record late last week because I was mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. zero. Uh, use of my of my vocal cords so um but i'm better now 
I'm feeling and good. We're, we're flexible on this podcast, right? So I, I appreciate about you guys is your flexibility, your tolerance for, and your patience for an old geezer like myself. You know, I always think of stories like, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, in, in the NBA finals, you know, oh, yeah. with the flu and stuff like that. But I don't know if anything can match Matt powering through a podcast a day later than the recording date, <laughs> almost not having his voice. It truly will go on the Mount Rushmore. Award-worthy. Yeah. Award-worthy performances and and you've heard josh already a couple times he's made his presence known but josh why don't you formally introduce yourself this week hello everyone i'm doing great as you can probably tell i am drinking a beer as usual i think it's going to become a new uh a new tradition for me and i i enjoyed the albums this week you're always drinking you're just announcing it now no no during the podcast recording We could do Josh's mm. beer corner. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. How how <laughs> Josh is, Josh <laughs> takes on the persona of many of the artists that we cover, as I think what well, so, we're ultimately trending to it. Suds and buds with Josh. <laughs> yes, so. I'm living that '70s lifestyle. Well, I'm neither sick nor inebriated over here on my end of things, but but depending on which album we talk about this week, perhaps I need to be sick or inebriated. That could be a teaser along the way, but speak of teasers, let's billboard the show, guys. So Josh, let's go backwards. What are you covering this week? I'm covering the last Led Zeppelin album that will cover physical graffiti, a double album. Hmm. And, and I look forward to finding out why the hell they named this album physical graffiti. Josh, do you have Mm. that tidbit for us? Oh, yes, I do recall Jimmy Page saying something about that. Let me pull that up, though. Okay. (laughs) We got time, Josh. You're the third (laughs) segment, so don't don't hurt yourself over there. It's that improvisation that's a key for the podcast success over there. And Matt, what are you covering this week? I'm doing The Piano Man, Billy Joel, with uh, The Stranger from 1977, the one and only time we are covering Billy Joel. Gotcha. And I am – it is not – the first time and not the last time that we're covering David Bowie either. Certainly and isn't. I'm going to be doing our seventh David Bowie album, Heroes, this week, also from 1977, I think much is, like Bowie was. Is Bowie going to come closest to the Beatles in times we're covering? Uh, Dylan. I think we, Dylan had quite a yeah. few. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I think we did like twelve. Like twelve Beatles, maybe twelve, 12 or thirteen. Yeah. I think we so, did 12 Beatles and Desire last week for Dylan was, was at nine. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think anything will beat the Beatles. No, I'm no. just wondering what second. Yeah, you're right, though. Dylan was a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. And Bowie's, I think Bowie and Dylan might be two, three right there. So Unless like Radiohead releases three albums this year, then they yeah, that's be true. the Beatles. That's true. They'll automatically, that, yeah. yeah. We've done zero there, so they've got plenty of time to, to become a staple on CTS. Mm-hmm. So speaking of CTS staples, look at this smooth transition, guys. I'm actually becoming a, a 2 out of 10 instead of the 1 out of 10 I started with in terms of hosting duties right here. A CTS staple cleaning the stacks this week. I know that both of my podcast mates have some cleaning, so why wait any longer? Let's have Outcast sing their way into Matt starting off the segment. All right, so I have a couple of quick things. I was looking up, uh, we talked last week about Finland, mm-hmm. and actually Scandinavia mm-hmm. as, as a larger uh, topic, and we were trying to think of bands from Finland, and we were struggling to do that, and I still struggled. I don't know if either of you 
did any looking into any Finnish bands. The only band that I came across in any lists that I saw that was any what somewhat recognizable was a band called Hanoi Rocks. Mm. And I don't know oh, why yeah. that that was familiar. I just recognized the name of the band. Um, but they were kind of like weren't, a glam glam metal. Weren't they the guy wasn't the guy from Hanoi Rocks in the car with like one of the Motley Crue guys in some sort of accident? Yeah, and you know what, John? It's funny you mentioned that because okay. I might as well I might as well go with this right now since uh, you 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 already kind of blew, blown that cover. But oh, I remember uh, the behind the music. I remember that's 30, how I remember the name. Thirty seven years ago, nineteen eighty four, to this day, December eighth, Vince Neil from Motley Crue was involved in a car accident in Redondo oh, wow. Beach, California, which killed Nikki Dingley from Hanoi Rocks and injured two wow. other passengers. Wow. Yep. How is Neil? that for symmetry? I know. I know that's really. and that's why well, I and at freaking that, Redondo but, yeah. Beach. How crazy is that after he covered oh, yeah. Patty, Patty Smith? Smith. Yeah. That's right. Yep. <laughs> wow. Uh, Neil was later sa- so he kills a guy basically. Uh, later was sentenced to thirty days in jail, five years probation, and had to pay two point six million dollars in restitution to the victims of the crash. He got out of jail after fifteen days for good behavior, which might have been the only time in Vince Neil's life. He, anything positive happened from good behavior because he really didn't have a whole lot of good behavior. Mm. So, yeah, that 37 years ago. There you crazy go. Crazy symmetry right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. it's, as we've mentioned before, and perhaps it's just because we're hyper aware of stuff, but there does seem to be a lot of that symmetry yeah. as we go through this journey. Huh? Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. It's kind of creepy. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we often, I text you guys that I hear songs from in mm-hmm. movies or TV that we just talked about or things that I wouldn't have recognized that I now recognize things which like is that slightly different than Matt getting articles about it, but not realizing that it's sponsored content from what we <laughs> talk about on the podcast. So this is like different. Just a tad. <laughs> yeah. But continue um, Matt. Did either of you come up with any Finnish bands? I mean, I, yeah, I, that was the thing I was going to bring up. The only uh-huh. one that sounded familiar was this metal band called Lordy. Um, and the guy's name is Mr. Lordy, and he dresses up kind of in like the in like a outfit like the Guar guys do. Um, I think he's got like a demon hmm. face and things like that. But that is the only one that sounded familiar. I also tried to look up most famous Finnish um, musicians, and Jean Sibelius, the classical musician, hmm. was like overwhelmingly the <laughs> consensus. So I listened to a few few tracks from from him on spotify and but i didn't recognize it nothing super yeah. did famous you, classically did speaking of symmetry did you not mention to me that jaco pistorius he of the bass oh, on yes. multiple Joni mitchell albums had some finished ties yes uh, that was after the show last week i i looked him up a little bit because we had talked about him and his mother is finnish so that was a strange that coincidence counts. and then yeah he died he died at 35 from bizarre not bizarre but unfortunate circumstances and he had an interesting life and there's also a documentary about him if you're interested Hmm. called jocko so cool Mm -hmm. yeah yeah the only other thing i found out about finnish you know obviously we talked about metal they're really into metal but i found I, i never heard of extreme metal but apparently there's a lot of bands from finland that are categorized under extreme metal which is different than death metal um and black metal, probably. There's all different types of metal. So so what makes it extreme then? I don't know. John, I'm thinking one day we should do like a Pepsi challenge with you and play like different types of metal and see if you can guess which genre of metal it's it like is. It's like black metal or extreme yeah. metal or mm-hmm. prog Death. metal or you doom got metal. Or so, mm-hmm. yeah. 
I don't know if I'm that level of metalhead. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it would be a fun challenge like any of those reactions. Maybe that's what the next evolution for the podcast should be. CTS yeah. reacts to and like just put random stuff up like viral <laughs> yeah. videos. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And then. And and unlike all of the other people who I think that some of the people who stumble onto our videos on YouTube think, we will not just randomly pick stuff that we think people will go to and then extol the greatness even if we don't mm. believe it just to get all the likes. We we do sustain the arrows on <laughs> YouTube from people who <laughs> think they're mm. going to hear us <laughs> yeah. giving, giving laurels and bushes to their favorite album only to be disappointed by yeah. Uh, our sometimes less than stellar take right there. So, and as I always mention, we are an amateur review podcast. So please keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So, so I had um, well, one other thing here. We were talking about Elvis because we covered Elvis last week, and we were talking about whether Elvis wrote any songs. Mm-hmm. And I did look it up. He didn't really write any songs. He's uh, you know famously you know said, yeah, I don't write songs. Uh, interestingly, though, it seems like he was given some writing credits. And it seems like this was done not just be- not because he really had any hand in actually writing songs, but it was a done in a way to help him get more money, get more royalties, so they would tag him on as a as a songwriter. Oh, jeez, um, smart move. And yeah, so I don't know if I don't know how often that happened, but yeah, he Rick recorded some ridiculous amount of songs, like six hundred songs or something like that, and he never really wrote any of them. So I think um, of it like you know Elvis could say something like you know. You wrote a baby, but I sang it like different and gave yeah. it a new set of words, you know, so that's right. Something like that. Yeah. No one can so. do in the ghetto like he can. So, you know, um. well, and you weren't on our episode where that was uh, our first no. album we covered from. No. Did you ever end up listening to that album? Because I know you were on the th- show. There. I don't think I did. No, it's a damn good. Album. I don't care if it has to have anything to do with me. I'm not paying attention to it. So. <laughs> mm. you know. Well, I know Josh went back on a couple that he missed. Into yeah, he's so a be- he's a better he's a better person than I am. Well, you're not quite the completest that the rest of us are. So you are. I still have time though. Expert. I'm not dead yet. I can still I could do that tonight. <laughs> that is true. To. You are here, so you <laughs> yeah. are not dead yet. And if you were, Josh, I'm sure would eulogize you in yeah. a few <laughs> yes. quick sentences to round off your bio. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so, cover you right. in cleaning the stacks and just put a little. Yeah. emoji of your face up on the, That's right. on the screen. Well, That's there's right. only a few people who are dead this week. One member of <laughs> Led Zeppelin, my guest, uh, David Bowie, and that's it. So, yeah. um, And boy, talk about transitions. Poor Billy Joel. I'm going to throw to like, he is not dead either. He is still m- very much alive. Well, I still have some histories to do, John. Yes. Oh, God. So well, let's, let's transition let's to head. this day in history. This day. History. All right. So 60 years ago, 1961, the Beach Boys' first single, Surfin', was released on Candix record. So mm. they start 60, 60 years ago. Um, Jesus. Yeah. We haven't covered this guy yet. I don't think we are going to cover him, but this story was too strange not to talk about. In 1963, 58 years ago, Frank Sinatra, tell me mm. if you guys have heard this story before. Frank Sinatra was kidnapped at gunpoint from a hotel in Lake Tahoe. He was released two days later after his father paid out the $240,000 ransom demanded by the kidnappers who were later captured and sentenced to long, long prison terms. And uh, in order to communicate with the kidnappers, kidnappers via payphone, the senior Sinatra carried a roll of dimes with him throughout this ordeal, which became a lifetime habit. He is said to have been buried with a roll of dimes. Never knew Frank Sinatra was yeah, kidnapped. I didn't, I didn't know that either. 
Interesting. It's surprising because he hung out with such upstanding citizens. <laughs> that, you know, you can never imagine something like well, that happening to such well, a he, such a clean, squeaky gentleman from my state had some, of New Jersey. He should have had some bodyguards with him or something. You know, some uh, some of those guys around him. But yeah, so. Uh, 53 years ago in 1968, Graham Nash left the Hollies and started work with David Crosby and Stephen Stills to form Crosby, Stills, and Nash. 52 years ago in 1969, Jimi Hendrix, on trial in Canada on drug possession charges, told the Toronto court that he had only smoked pot four times in his life, snorted cocaine twice, and took LSD no more than five times, telling the, <laughs> telling the jury that he had now, quote, outgrown drugs. They found that is the guitarist. Highly- specific yeah. perjury right there <laughs> <laughs> and they found him not guilty um nice <laughs> i swear i wasn't me officer yeah i just love the fact that that is clearly untrue but he felt the need to come up with exactly different numbers for each of the drugs to make it, i guess seem more authentic yeah I you guess. have to so, tell uh, a more convincing lie with very specific numbers how many times have you smoked pot oh exactly seven <laughs> this is not to be confused by the three times i've dropped acid and the the 76 cigarettes I smoked, you know, so, yeah. Yep. That's funny. Uh, 48 years ago, in 1973, Roxy Music had their first UK number one album when Stranded went to the top for one week. Hmm. Um, 45 years ago, today, in 1976, the Eagles released their fifth studio album, Hotel California, which is an album I think we're covering pretty soon. Coming uh, up. I, think, I think it's the next full-length episode. Maybe. I think... I can fact check that. Keep speaking, man. There you go. Well, this was their first album with guitarist Joe Walsh, who had replaced founding member Bernie Leadon. And that was a huge album. Topped the U.S. chart for eight weeks. And at the 20th Grammy Awards, the Eagles won a Grammy Award for Hotel California, which won Record of the Year. And worldwide sales of that record now stand at over $32 million. It'll be coming up in a, in a couple um, full-length episodes. So okay. four episodes okay. from now if we're going back wow. and forth. Yeah. How, uh, and, but our second uh, full length, right? Yes. Because there's a couple. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because yeah. I was going to say, Josh, Josh has been stranded. Josh just does all the early, a lot of the early albums. He's still in 76, and John's like in 1985 right now, seems like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 77. But yeah, yeah, I've been in 77 for a while. So yeah, that's yeah. true. Oh, man. 41 years ago today. I totally forgot about this. I don't know why. John Lennon was shot five times oh, by 25-year-old Mark Chapman outside the Dakota building in New York City. Uh, I know we talked about that before, but yeah, 41 years ago. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, well, finally, if my, I got a couple birthdays, but this, was my, this might be my favorite fact. Five years ago, 2016, <laughs> Sir Mick Jagger became a father yet again at the age of 73 oh, after his 29-year-old girlfriend, American ballerina Melanie Hamrick, gave birth to a boy in New York City. He had already had seven children, so this was his eighth, and those children's ages ranged from 17 to 45, He would, and he had already become a great-grandfather in 2014. <laughs> his his son is almost... Is almost but just over one year older than my daughter, who will turn four tomorrow. <laughs> so in a certain universe, my daughter and Mick Jagger's son could be schoolmates together. So there you go. I could see him at PTA meetings and stuff. That's like when you wow when you, yeah. <laughs> when you think about history going forward, when people were alive at the same time, like really weird ones like Ronald Reagan and Harriet Tubman or something like that. And yeah. the, the, the decades and 
Hey, generations. Maybe maybe, maybe my daughter and Mick Jagger's son will someday meet and get married, and then like I'll be in the Jagger family. That's and Jagger will be at the wedding at like a hundred and. <laughs> 16 years old or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so, I probably won't yeah. ever get to meet him, but, you know. Um, and then just a couple of quick birthdays here. Happy birthday, Toots Hibbert. Um, actually, well, a lot of these people are dead now, but uh, Toots Hibbert would have turned 79 uh, had he not died of COVID, actually, last year on September, September 11th, 2020. Um, but we covered we covered Toots in the Maytals. Can we you know, not make this, this day and deaths a thing? <laughs> I already feel like the... Death stalks this podcast, but go well, ahead. All these, I don't all these people are now dead. I won't mention their deaths. I'll just say Jim Morrison would have been 78 today. Greg okay. Allman would have been 74. And a gentleman by the name of Wawa Watson would have been 71. He was a guitarist and session musician uh, for Moat. He became famous uh, as a member of Motown Records with his studio band, The Funk Brothers, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And he recorded with such artists as The Temptations, The Jackson 5, The Four Tops, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Marvin Gaye and the Supremes, as well as Michael Jackson on the Off the Wall album, which we will be recovering uh, in the 19... Is that 1980s or 1970s? Off nope, the wall. 70s. 70s. Okay, so we're covering yeah. this. I have that soon. bio. There you go. I was about to say, are we getting close to music that was around when one of you was was alive at least yes that would be me <laughs> yeah. that would be me let me know when it starts feeling weird i'll, I'll be interested to see what the first album we cover because we've only done one in 78 so far matt yeah i don't know if you were around when that warren zevon album was released but uh, oh if i, I think... was alive when it was released i don't yes. i don't know we'll have to see we'll have to we'll have to do that what what's the first we'll have to fact check when the first album that we talk about was out that we were alive for it's a long time till 1993, Josh. So, you know. <laughs> so, uh, that album. For spoiler alert: I was not born in 1993. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to figure out when Warren Zevon came up. But anyway, oh, that's this year and uh, the, well, the, this day, 2000 or uh, December 8th, 2021. So that's when we were recording this. So. This year would be a much more robust segment, I think, for, mm. than just the yeah. yeah. Than Fair this, enough. This time, so. All right, so I jumped the gun before, and I apologize for that, Matt. But it is going to go back to you. Uh-huh. Um, go ahead and take us into segment one. All right, so we're covering Billy Joel's The Stranger from 1977. In the opening montage, you heard a clip from Only the Good Die Young. And now you're going to hear a clip from Moving Out, Anthony's song. Right, the stranger, the one and only time we are covering Billy Joel. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. Probably depends on who you are. At any rate, this comes in at number 60 in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums. Uh, it, it is Billy Joel's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. Number It, it comes in at number 8 in 1977 and number 253 overall. And it did make Rolling Stone's list coming in at number 169 of all time. 
So this is Billy Joel's fifth studio album. It was recorded between July and August uh, 1977, and it was released on September 29th, 1977. It has a whopping five singles that all did fairly well on the charts, and that included Moving Out, Just the Way You Are, The Stranger, Only the Good Die Young, and She's Always a Woman. Uh, the album did win two Grammys. Actually, it was mainly for the song. Uh, the song, Just the Way You Are, won a Grammy for Record and Song of the Year. And it's uh, Joel's best-selling non-compilation album. At the time, it surpassed uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water to become Columbia's best-selling album ever at that time, selling over 10 million copies. So a little bit of history on Mr. Joel. He was born William Martin Joel on May 9th, 1949 in the Bronx, New York, and grew up in Long Island and Oyster Bay. His father, uh, Howard Joel, was a classical pianist and businessman who was born in Germany but emigrated to Switzerland and then uh, emigrated, uh, emigrated to emigrated to Switzerland first and then to the United States to escape the Nazi regime. His mother, Rosalind, was from Brooklyn. And they met uh, in the 1930s at City College in New York at a Gilbert and Sullivan performance. Uh, but that didn't last, well, it lasted a little while, but they ended up divorcing in 1957 and his father moved back to Europe and settled in Vienna, Austria. Uh, but Joel reluctantly began taking piano lessons at the age of four at the insistence of his mother. So he, that's been playing pretty much his entire life. And as a teenager, I found this interesting. He took up boxing to defend himself, and he did pretty well. He boxed on the amateur Golden Gloves circuit for a period of time, winning about 22 bouts. But he quit shortly thereafter uh, when he broke his nose in his 24th fight. So uh, he hung him up at that point. And you might notice on the cover of this album, there's a pair of boxing gloves hanging in the background. So an, an homage to his boxing uh, career. He attended Hicksville High School until 1967, but he did not graduate. And uh, the reason that was cited for this, because at the time he was playing at uh, various piano bars to help support the family. And he missed a critical English exam after playing a late night set the night before. Um, he was a good student, but he didn't have enough credits to graduate and uh, decided rather than go to summer school and take a couple of classes, he decided to pursue music full time. Uh, but in 1992, his school made uh, good on this because he uh, submitted a series of essays uh, uh, and to his high school. And instead of that missed exam, and the high school said, okay, that's enough. We'll give you the high school diploma now. So he got his high school diploma 25 years after he should have. Um, he was influenced by Elvis and the Everly Brothers and the Beatles. And that was uh, like many other artists we've talked about. After seeing them play Ed Sullivan, he decided he wanted to be a rock star. The quote that he had on this was that one performance changed my life up until that moment i'd never considered playing rock as a career and when i saw four guys who didn't look like they'd come out of hollywood star mill who played their own songs and instruments and especially because you could see this look on john lennon's face and he looked like he was always saying "Fuck you i said you know these guys i said i know these guys i can relate to these guys i am these guys this is what i'm going to do play in a rock band so at the age of 16, he joins a cover band called The Echoes, um, which changed their name a couple of times. But they, but they, he was also able to record a couple of uh, songs with different artists, including the Shangri-Las. And he, in 1967, he leaves that band. He joins another band called The Hassles, who had signed with United Artists. And then shortly after that, he and the drummer from that band, a guy by the name of John Small, 
uh, leaves the band in 1969 to form a two-piece called Attila, and they actually released a debut album in 1970. But they broke up shortly after that, after Joel had an affair with Small's wife, Elizabeth. <laughs> That'll do and, it. Yep, and later, uh, Billy Joel would marry Elizabeth. And actually, some of the songs on this record, The Stranger, are uh, written about and for her. So he signs a contract with Family Productions and records his first studio album called Cold Spring Harbor in 1971. The album was not, it didn't really do very well at all. It was actually mastered at too high of a speed and was considered a technical flop on the original recording. It's basically, Billy Joel sounds like a chip, one of the chipmunks. It's just this really high-pitched vocals. And um, later on, they remastered it, but it was it was definitely something that he was not happy with. Uh, he goes on tour in 71. He's opening for bands like the Jay Giles Band, the Beach Boys, and Badfinger. And in 1972, his song Captain Jack starts getting radio play, and he's starting to get noticed, including by Columbia Records, who later did sign him. And he goes to L.A., and he records uh, the next album, which is Piano Man, which uh, is one is probably his, known as his signature song. Mm-hmm. And so that album's released in 1973. It sells okay, but it's um, it, you know it's still not doing uh, terribly well in the charts. Uh, and in 1974, he releases his third album, Streetlight Serenade. It, that included the hit The Entertainer, uh, and that was written in response to the radio stations playing abridged versions of Piano Man because it was too long. So you gotta gotta cut that down. So that's what The Entertainer was about. So he gets a little disenchanted with L.A. He returns to New York in 75. He records his fourth studio album, Turnstiles. And um, it's it again, it doesn't really sell well. So he kind of finds himself in this position where Columbia is going, all right, it's either this next album is going to do something or we're going to drop you. So we've covered other artists in that situation before. Um, so he really decides that he he needs a more lively sound than, than he had with his previous records. So he decides that he wants to record instead of with, with session musicians as he had before. He really wanted to record with the band that he had been touring with that was much more energetic. He um, So those those people included drummer Lib- Liberty DeVito, bassist Doug Stegmeyer, and multi-instrumentalist Richie Cannata, who played the saxophone and organ. And Billy Joel actually pr- uh, approaches Beatles producer George Martin to work on the album. And while George Martin agreed, he he did say that he wanted session musicians to play on it. And that was his vision for the record. And uh, Billy Joel doesn't want this. He's very adamant that he gets, you know, kind of these um, these live performers that he's been with. And so he decides, I'm not going to do what Martin wants to do. And so he teams up with another producer called uh, by the name of Phil Ramone, who I don't really recognize the name, but apparently he was an engineer and producer for other CTS uh, artists that we've covered. Getz and Gilberto, he was an engineer on that record. Uh, he also worked with John Coltrane, James Taylor, Aretha Franklin, and Paul Simon. And so this begins a relationship with with Joel and Ramon for many years. Ramon's basically his producer on all the subsequent albums up until like 1986, I believe. Um, and uh, the recording sessions were, were very positive. They, they went over the course of about three weeks and... Um, they released the album, and this this one does do well. It spends 17 weeks on the Billboard Top 10. It peaks at number two at, in February of 1978. It's very well received by critics, and it's now considered by many to be Billy Joel's finest album. 
Uh, in retrospective al- uh, review, Stephen Thomas Earlwine of All Music praised The Stranger as a highlight of Joel's discography, noting that its lyrical shortcomings are outweighed by Joel's musical flair, and ultimately concluding that Joel, quote, rarely wrote a set of songs better than those on The Stranger, nor did he often deliver an album as consistently listenable. So, yeah, so that's about the history of this record. I have probably a couple things I can throw in here and there about different songs and a little postscript at the end of the uh, of the uh, of of the uh, segment. But let's start off with our reactions here. Josh, I think you're going first here. What do you think about the stranger? So Billy Joel's one of those artists that always exists in like the ether for me. The based on singles you know his songs are always around uptown girl different you know all many of the songs on this album piano man etc etc but i never listened to an album um of his before and i i never i don't really have a a strong relationship with him he's not one of my favorite artists i've always kind of paired him in my mind with elton john even though i've liked elton john more i think it's because you know they both play the piano and that their front and center um, when they're yeah. on their stage act and stuff. And so, I mean, that that quote by Erlewine is, is pretty apt. It's a very listenable album, but I wasn't completely blown away by it. I The thing, he seems, his writing and his songcraft seem very accessible and appealing, and I think that's why people love him so much. I think, uh, and and that's why they love seeing him perform his songs. The way he writes his songs are they are very much little short stories or vignettes about people's lives, and they he does a really good job at evoking like a place, um, like scenes from Italian restaurant, for an example. And you know, you can you place yourself in the story, and then all of the songs are very um, single you can sing along to them very easily. I'm um, mm-hmm. up to an uh, uptown girl, only the good die young, which is, you know, probably one of my favorite songs. It's my favorite song on this album. And it's probably, if I had to do like, you know, a top two fifty favorite songs, it's probably in there because it, I, it's just a, so like up tempo and fun to sing to and the hand claps and all that. And you can sing right along with it and feel like you're part of the show. And I think that's part of the appeal of him. He, he really has that, that, every man appeal but he also has the kind of piano crooner um in a in a smoky bar type of um feel to him even though you know he's now and has been playing arenas for for his whole life Hmm. so i enjoy i mean there there is as i was listening to this album there are so many singles off of it i just like i was like okay i know that song i know that song i know that song and i didn't realize you know how stacked stacked the album was and i mean there are great songs on here there's no there's no question about it moving out is another one that i really like the other kind of comparison point for me is that a lot of his songs sound almost like they belong in a broadway musical for whatever reason like the way he writes songs or the way the music is structured it sounds like somebody should be on stage performing it like he's in a scene in a in a broadway musical and and i i thought that was interesting the i can see i feel like he's a very influential artist as well i hear and see things in in this album that remind me of other of other artists that moving out song i think there's like a guitar part that maroon 5 ripped off because i just kept hearing it <laughs> really and like I, and, and it's uh it's there maybe i'll try and splice a clip together 
um, for the episode. I also, part of Moving Out sounded like Rivers Cuomo singing on Weezer at times. I think it's from Pink Triangle. I tried to go back. Just the way that he sings a certain part reminded me of that and triggered it because I've heard that uh, Pinkerton so many times. Not saying those artists are influenced by him, but they, uh, you know, musically I kept hearing other things. The... Um, he, his songs are, are kind of sappy and schmaltzy in a way to me that I don't think has stood up the test of time. They, they sound dated at times, but uh, of that era, but they are still, um, they have that smooth 70s sound and I think they are, they're just kind eminently listenable. That's the, the main takeaway. He's not afraid to put sax in here. There's a lot of saxophone in this that I've, mm-hmm. that I noticed. And that seems to be paired with his piano, kind of his signature sound, I would say. The, the other comparison maybe would be he kind of has a Randy Newman-esque quality to his songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that he pairs words together or, or, I don't I think Randy Newman's a better more clever songwriter but and has a more like sense of like acerbic wit or sense of humor to him but I think he either the way he delivers his lyrics or the way that he writes about things that that kind of evoked uh, Randy Newman to me so I wasn't I don't love this album in the way that I have liked you know like the Elton John albums that we've talked about there there's something holding me back from putting Billy Joel in kind of like this upper echelon I think he is maybe a product of his time more than anything if there was a limitation to that but but it was an enjoyable album I'm not saying it's a bad album I I I enjoyed listening to it it was it's one of those albums you can put on and if somebody walks into the room they'll like enjoy it too and or say hey I know this song or things like that. So there is, you know, in, in all the artists that we've covered, there is a, an importance to some, an artist like that, that, that everyone can grab onto and, and, and enjoy. So mm-hmm. I give my, I give, it's a mildly positive, you know, review, you know, it's, it's not like the greatest thing I've ever heard and I don't, I don't hate it, but, but it's good. All right, John, what well, of the, really interesting things about doing this podcast is revisiting my takes that I've held for a long time. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with Pink Floyd, we've seen my stuff kind of move to find some stuff that's there. That was one, you know, Dylan, I wasn't always the big fan of. And so, uh, you know, and we saw with Matt, right. With Aerosmith and stuff. And so that's the cool thing about putting it under the lens. And I think that's why this was so good to listen to this music because um, it really changed my perspective because um, instead of thinking Billy Joel's album sucked, I just definitively realized that Billy Joel sucks. Like as I listened to this album, because I didn't like this album I at all. For a second there, I was like, <laughs> maybe he found something. Really no, nope. maybe he's gonna surprise <laughs> he me. It okay. is yeah, definitively totally. everything that I remember. <laughs> so, all right, where do I start? And yeah, I, uh, boy, boy, are we gonna get some hot? T- I Billy Joel fans in advance, <laughs> oh I apologize. I'm almost certain Matt's gonna have a different take of this. So, like, fast forward like ten minutes because you'll like his a lot better, I think. And you know, Josh did a very representative thing there too. Um, Billy Joel represents sort of 
I remember one time somebody said like he's a lesser version of all the artists you like, and that's how I feel about <laughs> Billy Joel. He's like yeah. at, throughout this album, he's a lesser version of Elton John at times when he's not being a lesser version of trying to do fifties or sixties doo-wop at times when he's not trying to do Springsteen at times when he's the, there's oftentimes when you listen to Billy Joel where you know exactly what like he's ripping off like that's his tumbleweed connection by Elton John period and you know mm-hmm. that's his you know. I'm I'm trying to be rock and roll like and do my version of punk, you know, when he's like writing like big shot and stuff and just I don't know, man. It's that that's that schmaltzy sentimental like his word just from the beginning. Let me move backwards. Like I haven't really ever listened to Billy Joel albums because to me Billy Joel exists as a greatest hits artist that's yeah. what his fans want him to be they want him to play the you know dozens of you know te- two dozens of songs that are hits and i mean the guy certainly has a lot of hits you know he he operates sort of to me in the same way that somebody like Bon Jovi operates where it's just there's this string of hits and you know if you said was that on Slippery When Wet or New Jersey or you know Always or who knows you know it could be any of them so mm-hmm. I was curious when I went to this like you know I knew I'd know like almost all of the album because Billy Joel's got an insane amount of you know top 10 songs um, so when I looked at it I'm like alright this is the one with Only the Good Die Young and Just the Way You Are and you know, moving out and stuff like that. It's like, uh, you know, I'll be very honest. I've avoided so many of these songs for so long. It's like, <laughs> it'll be really interesting to go back and listen to these. And I just put it on and like moving out. Anthony's song is like a perfect encapsulation of, I mean, all the way down to like, I'll give this to Billy Joel. The man knows melody. Now he knows melody in the way that like, <laughs> You know, like, like a hustler knows pool or so, you know, he knows enough to like, you know, be, to be understandable as like someone who knows it, but never in a way where they're a virtuoso. Right. So it's kind Mm. of like, you know, being, being the best guy at the local Y and like basketball, like you're not an NBA player, but you can still play basketball. Right. And that's, I feel like Billy Joel was with melody. I mean, the man knows how to write a catchy hook and there's something to be said for that. Um, So, so there's compliment number one. Compliment number two is, as Billy Joel songs go, Only the Good Die Young is probably as good as it gets. I think some of that is because whomever the session players are did a very nice job of, you know, putting some guitar in there that um, appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in moving out, just the, the lyrics, like, you know, <laughs> like rhyming attack with hack and sack, and you just could see him writing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's an attack, and where's he from? Hack and sack, and then he's at Mis- Mr. Cacciatore's. It's like, oh my God. It's like all the stuff that, like, just it's brutal and then the sound effect with the like you know it's like all the every everything about that song is each of the gimmicks you know what i mean that like um just do not speak to me at all like scenes from an italian restaurant is like your classic billy joel i i I mean billy joel is a guy i imagine at like three years old was thinking about all the women he was gonna marry you know and just that was the rest of his life right that he's just gonna have a series of you know, like writing. So I've always heard some origin story. He's like got 15 different origin stories of why he became a musician too. It's like one time it's, he saw the Beatles. Then another time it's like a girl looked at a bit of dance and that was why he did it. Just, and he He's writes these sentimental, like, you know, songs that are slice of life, but nothing about the lives he's writing about are appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 
I, I, let me start by saying this too. Like I can, I can appreciate how hard it is to do what Billy Joel does in terms of just writing hit after hit and hit. You know, it's it, that's not an easy thing. If anybody could do it, you know, they would do it, right? So I have a right. grudging appreciation for how hard that is and how long he did it. And certainly, um, he gives his audience what they want in live performances. He just does not exist in a space that speaks to me musically. Hmm. Um, I just feel there's so many other folks who who have spins on it that both precede Billy Joel and follow Billy Joel that that do what he does stronger i guess yeah um i am happy he exists because he brings so much joy to people that i know um friends and even you know family members you know not immediate but extended who love him and so many people i know their first concert was billy joel so i want to to co-sign on the fact that i'm happy he brings so much joy to people's life it just and i'll admit to my bias a little bit it just doesn't speak to me and it it doesn't the, the it's the combination of sentimental love songs, but that that don't have the complexity I need mixed with sort of a musical pastiche that I would say is like radio airplay. Uh, right. it, it's edgeless kind of. Um, he is like and, a safe artist in a way. Yeah, and I, I also like he's got that Phil Collins thing where he's the safe artist and he's always complaining about how he's viewed as safe, but like he keeps writing safe songs over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's like I, I this was supposed to be my edgiest album. I wrote like Big Shot on it. It's like, well, that's just you know, you being you, but like thinking it's edgy, you know, and then you know, Uptown Girl, you know, it's just there's a piano man it's all variations of a theme, right? So yeah. I mean I don't want to malinger this because I, I want to hear Matt's take on this and I, and I don't want to sit here and, you know, just get into it. I don't want to troll because that's not what I'm going for. It just, it doesn't speak to me. It's, I can't recommend this on, on my front. If you're a person that tends to like some edge to your music, um, Billy Joel's not for you. But if you're one of the 40 to 50 million plus people <laughs> who've bought and enjoyed his music, you are more in the, the mainstream. Billy Joel, and- thanks you. Well, and also, I'm happy for you, and there's no backhanded compliment there. I'm glad that something exists for you, and um, it just isn't. It just isn't what the same for me. I mean, this kind of gets to our personalities, though. Before Matt jumps in here, but if somebody named Billy Joel their favorite artist, I would kind of look at them as like, how much music have you actually listened to? You know, oh, I, I can <laughs> I can name at least five people in my life who would name Billy Joel as their favorite artist. So, and these are friends of mine, so I don't judge them. Yeah. I just I just know we don't have a lot in common musically. I guess right. is the best way I can put it. So, yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I I first need to start by saying that Billy Joel it's it's he's one of the more interesting artists just not just that we've covered but just out there uh in terms of my relationship to his music the evolution of my relationship to his music and just you know he's basically aside maybe from the aside from maybe the beatles he is the first what i would say maybe classic rock artist that i was became familiar with and really enjoyed um Mm -hmm. i throw tom petty in there probably maybe like him tom petty and the beatles would probably be that. So, so certainly he was on, he's been on my radar for many years. My, you know, many members of my family 
love Billy Joel, uh, you know, have his rec- played his records. Um, my Not my first. It's funny, John, you bring up Phil Collins because my first concert <laughs> was Phil Collins. I believe my second concert might have been Billy Joel during the Stormfront um, tour. So, You're kind um, of like a Billy Joel fan who like outgrew Billy Joel, aren't you, in some ways, I, Matt? It's, well, I'm, I'll get into that. Um, okay. Potentially. I mm-hmm. So... And I loved like his singles, and I agree. Like my, he's another artist, like many others that we've covered before, that I, I had his double uh, hit, uh, double album, greatest hits uh, CD. And so I don't, I didn't really know any Billy Joel albums. I never owned one. I never really listened to one before I listened to this record. I was like, okay, what's on the Stranger? I know the Stranger's on the Stranger. What else, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, when I looked at the track listing, I was like, holy crap! Seven of the nine songs are huge, either huge <laughs> hits or really familiar yeah. songs. It was only the last two that I had mm-hmm. never heard of before. Yeah, and same. when I, and when I kind of looked at his other records, I looked at other, you know, his other albums. There's no other album that has the level of familiarity that this one does. Um, there's each one of the albums has at least one or two songs on it that are very familiar that were big hits or singles. Um, but not really more than four, you know, I don't think it, this is, this is, so it, it makes sense that this is the record that we're covering because it's just, it's got so many, it's got a more, uh, per capita, a higher per capita of his, of his, um, well, best known songs. Um, so I've always liked Billy Joel. I've always had, you know, a, a, an affinity for him. I think his certainly his strongest gift, uh, which is his melody, which John you were talking about. I mean, yeah. he's. I think mm-hmm. he's. A, I think he really writes really good melodies. And if you know anything about me and what I like, you're going to know that I like a really good melody. So, um, and so I think you're getting plenty of that here. And you know, I picked "Moving Out" because I think, aside from "Only the Good Die Young," that's my other favorite song right. on this record, and yeah. it's got that. Yes, it's got it's kind of a love hate relationship because I do agree the the heart attack, ack, 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 you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. echoey <laughs> kind of thing is like kind of dumb. Thankfully, it's over very quickly. But he's got some really nice, cool, interesting chord progressions in there, particularly the part where it's like, and it seems such a waste of time. That like descending melodic part right there throws a little bit of a different thing in there. Um, and so he's got really great melodies that are just peppered throughout here. Um, you know, uh, scenes from an Italian restaurant is seen as, you know, he's, I think that he said that that's his favorite song that he's done. Um, and that's a song that he will always play at his concerts. It's kind of got this prog element to it. It's basically three songs put together that was inspired by Abbey Road. He did that because with the second half of Abbey Road, he wanted to put together kind of a, mm. a medley of, of songs. And and that's been a huge song. And that's, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's got a really cool kind of beginning to it. That's just a kind of a, pe- a pretty piano kind of loungy inspired kind of thing. thematically or sonically? Sonically, because of the progression of, this, of the I music. See. You know, it's like okay. three different pieces put together, much like the medley in Abbey Road was. It was, you know... Um, like just various songs that were kind of put together in a hodgepodge of a song, um, okay. you know, and then the second part's kind of like this upbeat Dixieland kind of jazz, jazzy yeah, Dixieland thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last part's more of the, 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 the Brenda and Eddie kind of thing is more of the rock and roll piece, you know? And so that, I've always gotcha. liked that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I would quite go as like this. It's like this amazing piece of work, but I, I certainly find it enjoyable and, and interesting and, and, and catchy and, and, and fun. And, you know, and then there's some beautiful songs in here. Yes, he gets a little schmaltzy, schmaltzy, schlocky, you know, just the way you are, um, 
which he actually didn't want to put that on the record at first. He, he himself, Billy Joel himself thought that was too schmaltzy, but the producer <laughs> wow. felt otherwise. It was like, no, you should really put that on there. So they actually called in Linda Ronstadt, who was recording at a studio nearby. She comes in and she's like, you should totally put that on the record. Um, he does. I just and imagine it, a series yeah. of like <laughs> 70s soft rock people coming yeah. in and having a... It, yeah anyway good yeah well and well the song ends up winning record of the year and song of the year so you know so that's you know it's kind of interesting good for that producer and linda ronstadt yeah (laughs) you know but um michael mcdonald what's your thought on this one let's get him in the studio (laughs) let's get all the yacht rock guys in here um you know and she's always a woman you know that's i I, that's it's a pretty melody you know Mm. and so that's the one that's one of the critiques i came across with this was you know, lyrically, I guess most people don't feel that he's all that great of a lyricist. Um, actually, a lot of the things that cynical was it's not just, you know, slice of life stuff, but there's a lot of cynicism in some of these lyrics. Um, you know, it, oh, it, I always think of Billy Joel as being very cynical in his lyrics. Yeah, yeah, always. yeah but it's but uh, but a lot of this is just couched in really catchy and melodies. So mm-hmm. um, so pretty much all the songs on here that I knew I, I, I liked. Um you know, Vienna's a very pretty song. Obviously, only the good die young. The last two songs were okay. You know, the last song's like a gospel song. Almost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like a preacher. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it was. I wasn't. It's called Everybody Has a Dream. It's a. It's again. It's it's a little schlocky. You know, um, but it's uh, it's it's okay. I didn't, I didn't. Neither one of those. That one or um, you know, get it right the first time. Neither one of those I found. I, I was okay with that, you know. I always like the beginning of the stranger, though the, the the whistling part, like the kind of like the it's almost like a western kind of yeah. <laughs> setting the mood. It's kind of a cool sounding thing. So, um, but it's so I, I like this. I don't like I I don't love it, and I definitely go into what John you were saying before. It's kind of like the de-evolution of my you know fandom of Billy Joel. Uh, somewhere along the line, like. I, I, the narrative turned from having all these people around me that love Billy Joel to having people around me, different groups of people, <laughs> hating Billy Joel. Like, 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 I like the hatred for him has been, you know, that's like the cool thing. That's like the narrative now is like we. Sh- it's cool to hate Billy Joel, and I've yeah. always thought that that was a little unfair. I get it. You're right, John. There's no edge, right, to Billy Joel, and is and, and when he's trying to be edgy, it's still kind of like you know, half-hearted. Because that's right. When he did something like Big Shot, I think that was on Glass Houses. That album, which came out in 1980, I believe, I, I read was kind of a reaction to the critics that were basically saying, well, he's well, got no edge. He doesn't do rock and roll. He does all this. And he's like, oh, yeah, here's rock and roll. So he tries to well, make a rock it was and roll his, album. It was his, quote, reaction to punk music. And for if you don't like oh, Billy God. Joel, comments like that are exactly why you're like, come yeah. on. Like, you know, and that's, well, I think, didn't... where it's like, yeah. And he didn't need to do that, you know what I mean? Nobody was ex- nobody was expecting Billy Joel to be, or wanting Billy Joel to be a punk rocker or a big right. rock and roll artist. You know, he did for what he did in his lane. He did very well, and you know he does get compared to Elton John a lot. Um, you know, John, you're kind of mentioning how there's other people that do does what he does better, but it's not. I mean, if you think about it, how many artists out there, like solo artists, that were just piano driven artists? Aside from him and you know Elton John, there's not. It's not a normal thing to see. I think even contemporary. I'm thinking like Ben Folds. Yeah. You know, like who else does this kind Feels. of thing? So uh, Fiona Apple, Alicia Keys. But I mean, they're not the stars that those two yeah. are. But if you're right. saying like who who plays a piano and does it, like yeah. Richard Richard Marx played a piano and had like ten 
hits in the 80s, you know, so it's not yeah. a foreign concept. It's just right, Billy Joel but and I, Elton John are the two biggest the biggest stars ones, that have yeah. ever done that by a factor of like five. Yeah, Right. But yeah. a lot of those other artists that you're mentioning came later on. You know, there's just still this it's it's not it's just it's not something that I've really seen a ton of. Um, but yeah, there's other people that do it. But like, I don't know. So I think that he I think that this is a this album. I like this album. I don't think it's a phenomenal album. I'm not going, you know, but I, I to me, I agree. I'm more of a greatest hits Billy Joel you know, kind of got, which actually this is kind of like, you know, this yeah. is actually kind of <laughs> it kind of is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I like it, but yeah, I always kind of feel like I have to defend Billy Joel because I, I do like him and I've always, I've always liked him. And there was a time in my life where I liked him a heck of a lot more than I do right now. Um, and I get his appeal, you know, the uh, Josh, you say like, do you really know music? If this is your favorite, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an easy listen. It's inoffensive. It's catchy. It's fun. Um, it's, it's got different types of sounds and moods that it can put you in. And, um, and he's made a career on that cause his, he hasn't made an album, a proper album since 1993 and he still tours and he sells out and he, people, people love him. So, you know, I think maybe that's part of the hatred is that people love him to a degree that other people are like, what do you, how do you love this guy this much? He's not that good. And maybe that's like a little bit of backlash against him. So, um, you know, uh, yeah. And I don't want to sound like an edgelord because my criticism <laughs> of Billy Joel is not like – and you're right. It's kind of morphed into like an over-the-top like Billy Joel sucks, kind of like what happened to Phil right. Collins who we mentioned earlier. And like that's not where mine – comes. like as I said before, I, I totally get why Billy Joel's popular. Yeah. And nothing about the fact that he's popular offends me because I think his lane should always exist in popular music because – uh, who who can argue that he doesn't write melodies that stick with people? I mean, even me, mm-hmm. while not liking the melodies, they stuck in my head. You know what I mean? Which is yeah. a, a gift. I think you know, I, I go back to I'm the lyrics guy, right, for the podcast. So there's like a good example, like she's always a woman. There's a set of lyrics that are not definitively terrible to most people, but to other people who are looking for lyrics will read as like terrible, right? Like something like she will promise you more than the garden of Eden. Then she'll carelessly cut you and laugh you while you're bleeding. I could see a lot of people list like reading that and thinking that's really profound and connecting to that. And then there's people like me who read that and go, I think he picked bleeding so that it can rhyme with Eden. (laughs) You know, it's like, and it's kind, you know, and, and both are right, you know, probably he did pick those, but also he did pick it to probably get a sentiment that he was trying to get across. And to me, that's the cool thing about music is to some degree, it's an extension of your personality, right? And if you are a romantic or a sentimentalist or mm-hmm. um, sort of like the big themes, you know, and relationships are the dominant thing you want to hear about, especially like the ups and downs of it, Um if uh, he's very long island as well what i think of is I, I have a lot of friends from long island and billy joel speaks to a sort of long islandness you know it's a a, a place you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like yeah it, yeah and like that's another thing you know i don't know anyone i've ever met there's more people i know from long island who like billy joel than new jerseyans who like bruce springsteen which is kind of remarkable when hmm. you think about that but um, he well, and some things right that I read about this. That some people have viewed this as a quasi concept record, even you know, because of the, the it could the be New York kind yeah. of thing. Hmm. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but I, I did come across that a couple of times about well, the, it's, the it's New a lot Yorkness of, like, of the of the record. Yeah, 
Yeah, a lot of it's like, you know, about relationships starting or like nine. I feel like 90% of Billy Joel's songs are about either falling in love, falling out of love or betting on yourself to make it big. <laughs> and I feel like all of those are his life. Right. Yeah. So like that's kind of it's like you're reading it. And like Billy Joel as a person, I think, can great on certain people. Uh, he does to me a little bit. I think that's a little bit of where he gets it because you watch interviews and you're like, you know, it's like, I was a boxer, you know, I grew up tough. And it's like, but you're Billy Joel, you know, like, you're not, you know, like, I get it, maybe at another time, but now you're Billy Joel, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. He's not, yeah, what, I, I don't think he's worth the contempt that people have. No, now. I, I he's think, definitely not. He's it's, people. It's, it's not the cool like, th- yeah. he doesn't make music interesting enough to wor- be worthy of contempt. Like, in well, that's harsh. Straight th- I, I, <laughs> yeah. Even I wouldn't be that bold. I, I would just say he's not my cup of tea, but I don't like when people um, go to extreme. And yeah, I, yeah. I will yeah. like Matt, I will defend the fact that while I don't connect with his music, I think the whole, this is who we can say sucks, you know, and, and like shout it with long screeds is ridiculous too, because yeah. And save he's, your ink, you know, but he does. I mean, it's, it's like inarguable. He's got, he's writes really good melodies. You know what I mean? Like, and they, they might not connect with you, but like, and he's a really good piano player. We haven't even mentioned yes. that. Like he's yeah. an excellent piano player. Like he's he's a really talented guy. He just happens and to write songs. And his backing band that, was very good on this album. Yeah. I will say that they were yeah. they for what he was doing. They worked perfectly. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I mean he just might like you said he might just write songs that that just don't do much for you, and it's like okay, but it's like he you know the vitriol. Yeah, he's just he's not a cool artist right and yeah. and like and he mm-hmm. gets a lot of flack for that and the phil well, Collins comparisons probably is pretty apt because I, I think you know, that yeah some of it is his fans too because i will say that i know people who would be just completely baffled by what we're stating is objective fact that billy mm-hmm. joel is not cool they'd say of course he is you know and it's like <laughs> and then of course your response is well you know who thinks billy joel is cool is uncool people right and it's and that's like sort of edgy but they're once again the truth sort of lies in the middle of that right that like but yeah. that's but i guess that's what i'm going like that like when i say that it's not it's it's more of like you know that there's the people like the masses that whatever would say that they don't like him or that he sucks or whatever it's it, it is it's he's not cool he's not doesn't have that edge you know that that people might want in their music or maybe it's not interesting enough or creative mm-hmm. enough or virtuoso enough or whatever but like I, I think that that I'm just saying that that's kind of like the that's the that's the narrative that comes a lot out a lot when you're talking to people that are really, you know, yeah, dot ragging on Billy Joel. You know, it's like he's a cool he's a punching bag for a lot of people, yeah, um, yeah. for whatever reason, and it's just. Yeah, and that's 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 something that a lot of people just get on the bandwagon for from for whatever reason. But and I know. don't feel comfortable not recommending this album because I no. I don't think it's fair to shut off this type of music for folks that enjoy melody and standard pop music. Um, I really don't. And I think that there's plenty of people I know know a lot about music who, you know, may have to couch it as this is their guilty pleasure, but you know, you should be able to say that you like this if you like it. And I was very trying to be very careful this week because like you said, I am very aware that it's become sort of like a, you know, contest to see who can do it. And I didn't want to come off sounding like that because you know, my, my take on that goes back a long time, right? So, and, and it, it always has come more from the songs themselves don't connect with me, lyrically and thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, now in order to say that, you have to throw in other stuff like, oh, his piano playing. It's like, no, no none of that 
you know, he he absolutely rightfully has a place in pop music, yeah. a big place sure, in the 70s sure. and, and 80s both. I mean, I think we all said positive things about it. I just, at the end of the day, he's never going to be, he's always going to be in the middle for me of, of people I like. I'm going to like I, his, I would agree with that, Josh. You know, I think so. that that's kind of where I've landed with him, that, you know, that I like him, that there's, and if, if like a lot of those greatest hit songs, and there's some stuff that's not even on that that are really great, you know, like Miami 2017 or whatever. That's a great song, mm-hmm. you know. So he's even got songs that I know that aren't part of the normal canon that are still really good. It's just, I, I, I haven't gotten to the next level with him, you know, the yeah. love that some other people have had. But, um, but yeah, it's it's worth it's certainly worth covering and talking about. And I think he's a tremendously talented guy. And um, but yeah, I think there was probably a time in my life where I liked him more than I do now. But this record was. Yeah, this is like a greatest hits album, and I definitely recommend it. And uh, you know, don't hate on Billy Joel so much, you haters. He's he's, can, he's good. Can he's we good. can we all agree though that River of Dreams is the worst Billy Joel song? Oh, I thought you were going to say we didn't start the fire. That's a pretty bad <laughs> song. Too, but I, I always I, the River of Dreams is the one that always stands listen, out. To I don't me. know that off the top of my head. I have to Here's to the it. thing: I have a couple of friends that I know that have said that we didn't start the fire. They hate Billy Joel, but we didn't start the fire is the best Billy Joel song. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That is the <laughs> dumbest take ever. So there's people. So that, people have all let, kinds of takes. Let me let me go on the record and say that if I was going to pick two Billy Joel songs, I would probably say My Life. And only the good die young would be the mm-hmm. two where I would tip my hat and say, these are the two. And if mm-hmm. I had to pick my least favorite Billy Joel songs, I'd pick like, it's still rock and roll to me, river of dreams. And we didn't start the fire. Yeah. Those are the three that to me represent like Billy Joel at his most excessive. <laughs> Josh river of dreams of is in the middle of the night. Oh, oh, oh. I go walk it in. <laughs> yeah. How do you I know go that was the name in the, of the song? In the middle of the, I go walking in. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so there you go. So anyway, it sounds like we have a couple. Oh, have... and I oh, and I go to extremes. That's a really bad song too. I just remember <laughs> I... that. One. So sorry. Yeah, I don't mind that song. I'm looking at like the big plate. I mean, <laughs> I feel like we we're going really long on Billy Joel, but yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm giving a thumbs up here. It sounds like we got maybe a couple of tepid thumbs up as well. Yeah, yeah. Reluctant. Um, no, I'm not giving a, th- a thumbs up. I'm not going that far. <laughs> okay. Instead of not only things, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> going thumbs down. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Nod. Yeah. All right. Uh, so just to wrap it up, but Joel has been, he's a very highly decorated musician. He's been nominated for 23 Grammy Awards, winning five of them, including Album of the Year for 52nd Street, which is the album that came out after The Stranger. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1992, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999, the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, which I didn't know was a thing, in 2006. He's the member. And in two... Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2001, he received the Johnny Mercer Award from the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he received the Kennedy Senator Center Honors for Influencing American Culture Through the Arts. There was actually a musical uh, called Moving Out from 2002. Josh, there you talked you about the musical, so they did, somebody did kind of take his music and uh, make a musical out of it. Um, and like I said, his last album of pop songs was from 1993, The River of Dreams. Um, he continues to tour and, and he plays all the hits. He doesn't really, he's, I think he might've written one or two songs since then. Um, but any, any music that he's really created afterwards has kind of been more instrumental or I think maybe orchestral, but mm-hmm. mostly he just tours and just makes money touring and playing the classics and, uh, and people love him for it. So, uh, so there you go. So he's There's basically the- actually the piano man now, like, of he really is. That yes. Song. Okay. <laughs> he absolutely yeah. is. Yes, for sure. Yep. 
So. All right. All right. So will we will we go as long on David Bowie as we? Well, we're, <laughs> we're certainly not going to go as long on the uh, bio because my bio is going to be a little more bare bones because you've done a bunch of bios. But first, let me uh, talk about what's there. So we um, in the montage we heard uh, Beauty and the Beast, and now you're going to hear probably the most well known track from this album uh, and the self titled track Heroes. All right, so uh, this album came out the same year as Low, which Wait, we've statistics, covered. statistics. Oh, yes. oh, you need numbers, John. All yeah. right, real quick, number 58 in the 1970s on Best Ever Ever Albums, just two below or two ahead of Billy Joel's The Stranger. Number seven in 1977, number 251 of all time. It is Bowie's sixth highest rated album on Best Ever Albums, and it did not make Rolling Stone's top 500 list. Hmm. Interesting. Gotcha. Okay. Well, a lot of the bio for this album is similar to the Low bio because um, mm. this came out very shortly after Low. Like back um, to it was back. Re- pretty much. It was released on October 14th, 1977, and the recording process was ridiculously quick. It was pretty much recorded on the spot, um, pretty much entirely in Berlin. Um, while these albums are known as the Berlin Trilogy, and when we say these albums, we're talking... Uh, low from earlier in the year heroes and then 1979's lodger um there actually was quite a bit of uh low that was recorded in other locations like france and even the united states in different parts but uh this album was pretty much all in berlin uh lodger was also another album that was recorded a little bit here and a little bit there um just to remind you again of what bowie was doing in the aftermath of this he had he had moved to berlin well, actually, he'd moved to Switzerland uh, to clean out, but then spent time in Berlin as well, um, mainly because Berlin, he felt, was a good place to sort of be anonymous. Um, we talked a little bit about the unique element of Berlin, um, which is going to be a part of this, the landscape of this album as well. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the West German element of Berlin and that you were right there and you could see the Soviet troops like outside the window of where they recorded this. So there was sort of that element of tension there and then west germany was western but it hadn't sort of moved into like i guess what you would call modern western at that point like the germany of the 70s and you know even the stuff that the krautrock is speaking to is is a different germany i think than like what 90s oos and modern germany is right like european Mm -hmm. union germany Mm -hmm. um because of the split of the country um and that informed this album quite a bit but um, the other thing, and we talked about it before, was that Bowie was out as uh, Iggy Pop's keyboard player um, on this mm. album. And he's he's back to being wildly productive. I guess it was like once the heroin goes away, you know, then it's <laughs> – or cocaine, I should say, you know, or everything pretty much. But he's back to being that ridiculously productive that we saw when he was, you know, producing all of these out. Al- like, let me do a Lou Reed album, then three of mine, and then different stuff. He's back to kind of that because he did both of Iggy Pop's uh, – 
solo albums uh during this time um the idiot and then he's actually recorded lust for life um during this period of time as well so he's got low lust for life and then um he's doing uh heroes this album uh while brian eno was sort of around and an informal collaborator uh on low um he was much more uh, present on this album as a truly formal collaborator. Uh, Tony mm. Visconti is also back, who was really more so the formal collaborator on Low. He's the producer here, and he's doing percussion on this album as well. Um, Eno was particularly featured on one side of this album. Uh, I'll give you guys a guess <laughs> as to which side Brian Eno was more featured on. Oh, would it be take, the second take half? Take a guess. <laughs> yes, the second half of the album really was where Brian Eno shined. And you'll be happy to know that while not as in use as in Lodger, where they were used often, guess what was utilized for the first time with Eno and Bowie as a collaboration on this project? Oh, oh you have to was know. The Arp the synthesizer? synthesizer? No. Oblique strategy cards oh, were utilized <laughs> for ideas musically on this album. So oh, okay. they were it. utilized on this. Uh, and it's, it's, it's one of the albums that's known as, as an Oblique Strategies album. So, okay. he's there. <laughs> so uh, this it is was... the first Oblique Strategies album? No, there were others, like okay. his, his own albums, okay. right? Like gotcha. stuff, but, but And some of the other stuff he worked on. But this was the first Bowie album <laughs> okay, that had the Oblique gotcha. Strategies. And apparently Lodger is even more influenced. Jeez, okay. This was Oblique Strategies were used more for the musical ideas on this album, whereas on Lodger it was general creativity across the board. So uh, this album was recorded um, solely in Berlin, as I mentioned earlier. It's in the Hansa Studio 2. Uh, this studio was a former convention hall converted into a recording studio that actually had been used by the Gestapo back in the day as a ballroom for Nazi events. So that's Jeez. where it's being recorded. Um, he has, so along with uh, Eno's contributions, and he brings back the band that's been with him on Station to Station and Low, which as a reminder is mm -hmm. Carlos Alomar on guitar, George Murray on bass, and Dennis Davis on drums. And he also has another... Uh, person who very much is on the front of this album i don't know if you were able to recognize the guitar tone on the beginning of the album but that would be king crimson guitarist robert fripp oh who damn was, it's a whole interesting story how he was he was not the first choice they wanted some other people ahead of him but then eventually eno and bowie decided that fripp would be a good fit um for, for, there's like it, there's a funny story i'm actually going to quote it directly so this is taken from an interview with fripp here is how fripp describes um like the the discussion of him playing on it so i i guess eno and bowie reach out to him and he shares he hadn't really played for three years he said at this point in 1977 uh he but his quote is but if you're prepared to take a risk so am i so apparently it was left there and then a ticket showed up to berlin so he flies to berlin and he, here's how he describes it. Upon his arrival to the studio, Fripp sat down and recorded lead guitar parts for tracks he had never heard before. He received little guidance from Bowie, who had yet to write lyrics or melodies. Now, what, let me stop right there real quick. Bowie had become fascinated by the fact that Iggy Pop basically like would walk up to the microphone and just improvise lyrics or you know stage talk mm -hmm. and different stuff. And Bowie decides, I kind of want to do that for this album. And so all of the <laughs> lyrics on this pretty much were him just walking up to the microphone with music playing and then him 
improvising so mm. the, the lyrical parts on this that was how that stuff was done oftentimes they had no idea what the lyrics were until they start recording the songs <laughs> in fact not off most of the time on this album so anyway fripp um completes all of his guitar parts in three days over songs that have no lyrics or melodies right just he's basically getting little guidance from bowie just general ideas so i'm guessing he might be getting oblique strategies from bowie <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> about <laughs> what to do so uh Anyway, Fripp's playing receives significant praise from both uh, Visconti and Eno, who produced it. Um, and they said basically he was it was amazing how uh, much of a virtuoso he was without much of a skeleton at all. Um, do you want to know who the first choice was for Bowie as the guitarist on this album? Michael Rother. Do you remember that name? No, I do not know. He is of the German band Neu, which oh, we've covered okay. before. Yes. Um I think the story is funny. He was going to be there, but shortly before the sessions began, Bowie was contacted by an unknown, uh, excuse me, uh, Rother was contacted by an unknown person and informed that Bowie had changed his mind, although later interviews with Bowie suggested otherwise. So that leads me to believe, did somebody randomly call him? Uh, it didn't seem like Robert Fripp was so enthusiastic to do this, you know, that he would have, you know, done the subterfuge, but... You know, who knows? Maybe well, if he wanted that. somebody from Kraftwerk, he would have had to make a phone call and just <laughs> right. hope that somebody would answer it without the ring happening, right? Like, Well, interestingly that you mentioned Kraftwerk, did you happen to catch a Kraftwerk nod in this album? Is it on V2 Schneider? You got it. You do remember one of Kraftwerk's members is Florian Schneider, Schneider correct? Yes. So that is a throwback to him. Originally, Bowie had talked about working with them and, you know... um, Trans Europe Express had had um, nods to Bowie in it, and then that was their his nod to um, to Schneider of Krautrock uh, of Kraut of Kraftwerk, excuse me, <laughs> Freudian slip there. Um, the mood during this album was uh, described as influenced by the nature of Berlin as a city that leaned to both the West and in the immediate view of the East, which at that point meant Soviet. Um, and then uh, the Mood was described as electric and collaborative. Bowie was apparently in a really good place for this album. Um, one last thing that I thought was interesting was that there were so many ideas going around that Visconti actually kept a two-track tape recorder going to catch all the ideas that were being recorded. Um, he, during recording, fed drums through the Eventide H910 Harmonizer, which is an instrument that was described uh, as creating a distinctive high-tech sheen to the music. So um, the drummer, Davis, also played congas and timpani on this, and his work on this album is often praised, uh, the, the percussion on this album. Uh, this album is considered, uh, depending on who you talk to, it could be considered a, a premier work in art rock, experimental rock, ambient rock, electronic music, and rock music. Um, it is constructed similarly to Low in that the side one of the album was more conventional tracks and side mm -hmm. two was mostly instrumental and experimental tracks. Um, it was highly successful, hitting number three on the UK charts and number 35 on the US charts, which may sound low for the US, but if you've noticed, his, his US work through the 70s was probably more critically well-regarded than like big, big hit. Yeah. He, he probably was, you know being edged out by people like Billy Joel 
um you oh, know, yeah. in terms of yeah you know what i'm saying so yeah. like the 35 mm-hmm. was still considered to be money-making spot you know in the u.s especially with the artistic sheen um and then this led to the highly successful isolar 2 world tour in 1978 where bowie performed songs from this album and low for the first time and mixed in uh non-ziggy stardust um greatest hits so like the mm. the plastic soul type stuff and just different odds and ends a lot of covers um and we'll leave there because we don't do lodger but we do do diamond dogs so i'll probably before um no not diamond dogs or not diamond dogs excuse me um uh gosh uh scary scary monsters, monsters. scary yeah. monsters yes we do scary monsters in 1980 when we get to the 80s so i'll probably encapsulate both the lodger and scary monsters period there okay. all right I think Matt starts us off. Matt, what were your thoughts on this album? Um, yeah, man, this is Bowie's. Just it's always interesting, and um, I, I I did like this. This is it's it's very similar. It doesn't shock me that it lines up in with the the Berlin trilogy with Low. It's it's very similar kind of listening experience, uh, particularly just the way that the sides are broken up, and um, right off the bat, like it's yes, the Eno influence is certainly more prominent on the second side. But right off the bat with Beauty and the Beast, I mean, there's there's sounds that are going on there that sound like it came from one of those 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 earlier, you know, records, you know, like whatever. I don't know what the sound is. I don't even it's like, wow, it's like this. It's got like there's a droning a, or something. A, there's a clear instrumentation there, a clear like, like, yeah. synthesizer. Wow. That, wow. Yeah, that's just like and now I've now that I'm more familiar with Brian, you know, thanks to the, the, the episodes that we did for him. Like that sound is like that's an Eno sound, you know, like mm-hmm. that's a distinctive sound, and and that's that's in the first side of this record as well, um, and was was prominent there with Beauty and the Beast. Um, I did know Beauty and the Beast and Heroes prior to this uh, listen because those were on the best hits, <laughs> greatest uh, singles uh, yeah. record that I had. So um, and I like both of those. And, um, you know, I like the first side. I liked, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly all that stuff, all those genres that you threw out there, John, you can certainly pin, pinpoint all of them here. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's upbeat. It's catchy. It's, it's, it, there is some dance, danceable stuff in here. And um, this to me sounds like, and I don't, I don't really remember thinking this with the, the low album. But this to me sounds very much more 80s than it does 70s. If I were, if you were to play this record for me and not tell me when it was recorded, to say, "Hey, this is Bowie," like when do you think this would have would have been? I would have said some probably sometime in the 80s. It just doesn't. It, it so it's got that forward looking, you know, um, sound to it that uh, you know I, I'm not really detecting much 70s type sounding stuff here at all. And a lot of that's because of the electronics. There's certainly some craftwork stuff in here. That's another album that that you know sounded more 80s and 70s and that that's no not surprise i mean these guys are are forerunners and they're influencing people and and this is a large reason why the 80s sounded the way that they did so um i'm looking at the track listing here on on wikipedia and it's interesting that eno does have several writing credits um mostly on the second half of the record but the first half there's one song on the first side that he's credited to writing and it's the one you would least think he's he co-wrote heroes which sounds which to me seems out of place on this record this is it's a more it's the most traditional straight up straight ahead uh kind of rock slash pop song Mm -hmm. there's not really the experimentation you know nearly to the degree there's some a little bit in the background but Th- I there's... think that's where the Eno influence comes in, right? But it's but it's minimal. There's well, way I, I'm seeing way more Eno influence in the other songs on the first side well, than I am to, with Heroes. You have to remember the first side. Eno is mostly playing the synthesizer. That's oh. what his contribution is. So like on Beauty and the Beast, he's he's 
the sounds you're that, that's right. playing the but synth, it would make more sense to me if he was the, yeah it would make more sense if he was co-wrote one of those songs you know the fact that he co-wrote the song that sounds least eno-esque is just interesting to me that's all you know um that yeah. that his it, that well his but sonic... if you remember that he was also helping to write stuff in roxy music and i know we only did one album yeah. on that for your pleasure but like he you know he he can write traditional pop songs yes you know he just no, we just he think can. of him as being strange but like it's he can also mainline it, you know. Right. I, I'm just saying that if he's going to be co-writing a song, I would think not just. I mean, I I, I don't question the, his ability to write melody. I mean, he did that in his solo records, which were more experimental. But it's just interesting that that a song that he had a little bit more buy-in with because he co-wrote it, like the influence, the sonic influence is 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 in the backseat more so than any really any other song on this record. It just I just it just stood out to me as oh it's, that's not the song I would have thought that he co-wrote. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but Heroes is a great song. I've always liked that song. It's 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 got you know it's got that you know the bass line that's very recognizable. Um, and uh, it's just I love the way that it builds. It kind of it doesn't really change a whole lot, but it, but I do like it. It, it kind of stays in its lane and it, and it does build and it's, um, and it's just a really well-crafted song that's, um, that never really gets old for me. You like the version triple, or the triple guitar attack? Better? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like, I think I like Bowie's version better, Josh. Um, yeah. Do you recognize that song as having triple guitar attack? Cause you've got Murray on bass, uh, Carlos Alomar's on rhythm. See, I never consider Trip the bass. I don't consider bass as being part of triple guitar is triple guitar. The bass should not okay. be considered in the triple guitar. What if um, there's a bass with built in with the uh, with the guitar, like a double necked guitar? <laughs> well, if you're playing them at the same time, then yes. Well, but I don't if, see anybody we're talking, doing that. If we're talking Iron Maiden, right? Triple guitar attack. There definitely one of the guitars was a bass, Steve Harris. So no, they have three guitarists and a bassist. Right. Well, okay. Gotcha. So I'm All saying, right, if you're going to say yeah. triple guitar, I'm talking so guitar, not not ba- anyway. Uh, yeah. um, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. Because the bass, because the bass is always going to be there. Everybody's got a bass. For the most um, part. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but it doesn't surprise me that there's, that, yeah, there's a lot. That's a full sounding song. The um the second part of the album, the the the, the Sonic, you know, experimentation songs, uh, I I do like particularly Moss Garden. I like the that one's another one of those spot. That's actually more of a relaxing spot type song. It's got the it's got like that the Asian... was relaxing to you. I, that yeah, sounds I, I, like I, a yeah. creepy freaking for... forest. Yeah, Moss Garden. No, I kind of did find that relaxing in a weird way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, weird. That little Chinese whatever that instrument is, that Asian instrument, the kind of. Uh, or maybe it's Japanese, but it's kind of got like whatever the string is. I'm not sure what it is, but it's some sort of Eastern. I, I imagine uh, it's what sounding. it would feel like to be murdered in a spa, perhaps in the forest. Really? Spa. <laughs> yes. Lost Garden? No, I didn't. I don't remember thinking I was going to get murdered. Um, but I think my favorite song in the album might be the last one, "The Secret Life of Arabia." That's a great song. That's like, in that sounded like a Blondie song. I was reminded of of Blondie listening to that, and I really liked the bass. Um, you know, just that bass line could have gone throughout the whole. You know, they could have. It's like a three. It's under four minutes. They probably could have added three or four minutes of just keeping on with that, and I would have liked it. So, um, so I do like this record. I still don't. Between this and low, I think I probably like low better. Um, I think it had higher high points there. I think of these types of albums, I'm kind of lumping them a little bit together. But I think the one, I think Station to Station is still standing out to me as being a little bit more of my um, probably my favorite of the post like rock like straight up rock mm. bowie um that yeah. we've covered so but i do i've liked all of these they're all real bowie's super interesting and um you know you're never bored listening to a bowie record it's always got something you know different going on so uh so thumbs up for me 
So Matt, I think the instrument you're thinking of is known as the shamisen. It's a Japanese instrument. Shamisen, okay. Also known yeah. as the samisen. It's cool. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very distinct uh, Japanese sounding. So I don't know if this is the hot take, but this was kind of the first Bowie album in the string of ones that we've listened to that I I wasn't that high on. I really didn't connect with it as much as Low or Station to Station. I was maybe it was my expectations because you know Bowie's kind of been on this string of really good albums and I thought this would be another one and I'm not too familiar with Heroes other than Heroes the song so I didn't I can't say of any um remember uh recognition recognition of listening to this album before and I feel like it's just low just does everything better in my mind I think the because it's structured the same way, it, it makes it an easy comparison for me. I think the songs on the front half are stronger on low, and there's kind of more hit after hit. I think Heroes is the clear standout of the of the front half of the album. And then on the back half, I think this kind of sonic soundscape, you know, Krautrock inspired stuff on low is stronger than this. And I had more of a more of an impact and was more interesting to me than the stuff on this one. The back half on this definitely struck me as, as darker and kind of more more menacing. I feel like there may be more synth on this um, th- on this back half than than on low. And also, I f- that song "Blackout" is kind of was which is you know smack in the middle. And I think I don't know if it's part of the the Eno, you know montage group of songs i don't think it is but it has like this schizophrenic feel to it to me that was very like and there's like this high-pitched droning or noise at the end and and that kind of like really turned me off and i couldn't i couldn't get into it It, well there is an actual story to that song i don't know if you have any interest in hearing it quickly for context oh yeah yeah tell me so um i guess bowie had a blackout in berlin where he was rushed to the hospital and the song is supposed to reflect the chaos of what he was feeling and sort of his sonic, like sort of, it was a sonic exploration of um, that process. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess he had a, he also compared it to, there was that, I mean, he, he literally described it as like sonic schizophrenia was how he'd said it was. And he... Not only did he take it as like his own blackout on stage in Berlin, but he also said, you know, in New York City, he'd read about the blackouts there in 1977 and he wanted to do sort of so, I mean, real artsy stuff. Right. But that was kind of the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is verging overall. This album verges on kind of the aspects of Krautrock that I don't like. And it kind of veers into the more like too experimental for me aspect if I if I had to to summarize it overall and then i think the songs on the front half just aren't as catchy or or as interesting to me as they are on low that that that's my overall feel on the album there's definitely aspects of it that i like but and and another curious thing i don't know why they he ended with secret life of arabia it seems like that should be on the front half i don't they didn't have a song like that at the end of low Maybe Bowie's overall just kind of experimenting or maybe Eno's influences more on this album in, in a negative way to me. But I just didn't, I really didn't um, respond to this one as much. 
Gotcha. I, I um I always find this in, this album really interesting. Um, it's clearly a companion piece with Low, so it's very hard to to separate them. I've kind of always described this as um, Bowie. You know, Bowie always for years was always ahead of his time, right? And so this is, I think, Bowie looking at what the '80s was going to be. Um, and as Matt mentioned, I think I don't know if this sounds like an '80s album, but this sounds like what the '80s is going to sound like um, more so than what Low sounded like, which seemed to be more of a response to what was going on in the present at that time mm-hmm. um all bowie's albums are fascinating because you you can recognize like something like ziggy stardust as a concept album but to some degree all of bowie's albums are a concept album with the personas and that goes back to what we talked about in an earlier segment that it's so yeah. impossible for me to non-contextualize bowie because you you have to know what's going on in bowie's life to understand the music he's making i feel like i mean yes could you listen to heroes in isolation but when you listen to this album can you really place heroes you know at, on this album or you know in in contextualizing it the themes of this album seem to very much be bowie um in germany i think it has a very industrial sparse mm-hmm. sound mm-hmm. Yeah. um that, that is clearly, you could tell, influenced by what we know of Berlin at that time. Mixed with, you know, him bringing Robert Fripp in and Eno to do the synth and stuff. He's got a lot of these influences that call back to Pragish elements and ambient and experimental. And I think a lot of the reason he's doing that is because at the point he... I mean, you think about what Bowie in his life is doing. He's moved. He's a father now. He kicked pretty significant combination of drug abuse and mental health issues um he seems to be slightly more content but contemplative as well um Mm -hmm. he's he's definitely thinking about like religious and spiritual themes for sure um if you you know the what he's sort of freelancing lyrically goes down that path quite a bit uh, there are some songs we haven't touched on that i really like on this album joe the lion is a really cool song there's a lot of interesting synth lines in that. I, I love the sax throughout this album as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the musical choices, at times it's got sort of the sax and almost the plastic solely sound from station to station. And we didn't cover Young Americans, but a little bit of that sound as well with it. So he's kind of grab bagging from some of his more recent influences, but clearly also pointing to, all right, now I've got all these sounds and on low I sort of appropriated them and now i'm giving you a vision for how i think it's going to sound sonically in the future which actually is kind of remarkably in line with what stuff is going to sound like in the future if you know anything about like people like gary newman and stuff like that i mean that's that's where this is headed um even like the talking heads right there's there's a lot of overlap with what the talking heads do and you know talking Heads 77 came out the same year this album did and if you don't think they were listening to these bowie albums you know before and even in contemporary form um you haven't listened to a lot of talking heads so i like this one do i like it as much as low no because low is just such a interesting deviation from the rest of his catalog and just somehow manages to be strange and artsy but with an accessibility that's very hard to get this album i think is pretty accessible too but in a different way 
Um, and I wonder if we hadn't done them so close to each other, if it's not a, a thing of suffering in comparison to, hmm. um, as opposed to just, cause you know, if we had never heard low and then you heard this album, I think it might hit a little differently yeah, if maybe. that makes sense. Yeah. For me at least. So I would give this, I would give this a, a, a thumbs up. I, I don't like it as much as the gold standard Bowie stuff we've done. Um, you know, for me that that's low, that's station to station, that's, um, Ziggy Stardust. That's probably the big three for me um but i like it a little bit more experimentally than maybe something like aladdin sane or hunky dory which while also you know variations of a theme and in different directions um didn't do as much for me as this one did have you guys heard lodger how does that compare since it's part of thematically the same i I heard it when i first listened to all of these albums way back when um it's probably been a decade since i last listened to it Mm -hmm. um I remember it being more accessible from a traditional Western pop, you know, like if you were, if your frame of reference was American or English pop music or rock music, I think Lodger from what I remember is the most in line with that. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know it that well. I'm just, I'm looking at the thing right here. I don't recognize any of the track names. Um, it's also it's ranked fifteenth on in best ever albums, so it's considerably lower than um, than the ones that we've been covering. Hmm. Yeah, but you got to figure fifteenth in Bowie's canon. I mean, his top ten are all albums we're <laughs> yeah. going to cover. You know, I so mean, it's still number. It's it's still two seventy two in the seventies. Yeah, you know? yeah. So. Yeah, because we haven't done, you know, I know that uh, uh, Scary Monster is well regarded. I know Black Star that he recorded all the way in the 2000s is well regarded. You know, so there's, it's not like um, it's 15, you know, underneath all of these other crappy albums. It's behind, it's still considered to be a good album, you know, not like a lesser Bowie album, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. All right, Josh, the floor is yours. Okay, so let me make a little note here and we've got led zeppelin's physical graffiti in the opening montage you heard cashmere and now you're going to hear the rover Okay, Matt, tell me the stats. All right. So Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti, it comes in at number 25 in 1970s on Best Ever Albums, number 5 in 1975, number 101 of all time, and in Rolling Stones list, it comes in at number 144. Okay. So we last talked about uh, Houses of the Holy, which was the previous album of this, and I'm back on episode 21 of the show and just as a little little recap to continue on with the story of led zeppelin houses of the holy came out in march of 73 and this album came out 
in February 24th, 1975. Um, so after Houses of the Holy came out, they toured for the rest of the year in 73. And May 5th of 73 in Tampa, on the second date of their ninth U.S. tour, they set a record of 56,800 fans for the largest number of people attending a concert beating the Beatles at Shea Stadium in 1965. Hmm. So that's kind of to put in perspective of how popular they were, essentially. All, all four of them were exhausted um, from touring after returning to England in August of 73. And John Paul Jones especially um, was especially exhausted and had started to consider quitting the band um, and was mulling that over. And Peter Grant, their manager, um, told them, you know, you can do that, but why don't you just take some time off and and recollect and, you know, um, get away from it all before you make that decision. In the autumn of 73, um, having that break from touring, they decided to plan to start their own record label, um, Swan Song Records, um, with the idea being that, uh, you know, like, like Apple Records and, and others, the idea being complete artistic and financial freedom from the record company. Their five-year contract with Atlantic um, was expiring on October 28th of 73, so this was in perfect timing with that and to set them up for the future. Mm-hmm. The label launched in May of 74, and uh, Physical Graffiti is actually the third album to appear on that label, they used, uh, you know, in addition to their music, they were promoting other um, artists and signing them. And the other albums uh, that came out before them are Bad Company's debut album and The Pretty Things album um, was also there. And there was this other band um, as well that's not as well known, and uh, I didn't write them down. <laughs> so, Some other guys yeah, and a band. Um, fun fact, this, this album was originally supposed to be recorded in another mobile studio, not oh. the Rolling Stones mobile studio. There was a second mm. one? Yes, a mobile studio wow. owned by Ronnie Lane, the former bassist and co-founder of The Small Faces. And uh, oh, wow. the Rolling Stones mobile studio was not available at the time, so they brought this one in to start. And it did not... Um, they did Not much was accomplished, unfortunately. Is, is uh, anybody else surprised that the Rolling Stones <laughs> mobile studio lasted as long as it did? I mean, with all the debauchery and alcohol and, like, probably, you know, urination and vomiting was, and all that stuff that, like... Was, though, you know, the mobile studio where they went to get away from the debauchery that was going on at all other times? Yeah, or so it continue? Yeah, but I'm sure it had to continue, right? Like, just because it moves doesn't mean you stop boozing. What? Also, why aren't there more mobile studios now, Camp? Yeah, that seems appealing to me. But <laughs> everything was better back in the day, Josh. It's that's probably, right. and it's also probably a lot easier to have a mobile studio right now because all you need is a computer. Like oh, you don't even true. need Everybody's like tape and mobile. stuff, right? Yeah, I think yeah. your mobile studio is your iPhone now. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I'm saying? true. So uh, due to John Paul Jones not being around um, during that time, he was spending time with his family. Um, Peter Grant used the studio to record Bad Company's debut album. Ultimately, they went back to Headley Grange, which is where they is that, mm-hmm. you know, country place where they recorded many of their other albums. And they finished this album at Olympic Studios in London, as they have had as they have in the past. Um, in. Uh, OK, in 1975, um, Physical Graffiti came out 
and consisted of 15 songs, eight of which were recorded at the Country House in Headley Grange in 74, and seven were even earlier. The seven were unreleased tracks from various Led Zeppelin um, sessions from Led Zeppelin 3, 4, and Houses of the Holy, all between the period of, uh, recorded between the period of 70 and 72, or at least uh, written and, you know, demoed. The new, the new eight songs went longer than uh, a full LP, so they decided to make a double LP. And Jimmy Page said the idea for a double album was there from the start since they didn't want to omit any of the new songs that um, they were including. There's no kind of rhyme or reason um, for the order of the tracks, meaning, you know, the new songs aren't all first and then followed by the by the unreleased ones. They're they're inter they're mixed in between, kind of alternating almost. The by the time this album was released, it had been two years since Houses of the Holy came out. So that was a, kind of a significant amount of time for a band that has known for constant touring and um, you know, releasing albums almost like every year, it seems like, since we've talked about so many of them. Um, uh, the new songs on this album, in case you're interested, are Custard Pie, In My Time of Dying, Trampled Underfoot, Cashmere, In the Light, Ten Years Gone, The Wanton Song, and Sick Again. I, I wrote those out in, in order as they appear on the album, so you can kind of get the feel mm, of that. Mm-hmm. This, um, some a couple fun facts about uh, a few of these songs on this album in my time of dying was a reworking of Bob Dylan's version of in in my time of dying which was an old gospel blues song called Jesus make up my dying bed mm. so they're definitely influenced by Dylan he's there again um, cashmere was reused by Puff Daddy with Jimmy Page on the 1998 Godzilla <laughs> soundtrack making Come a connection uh, to heroes from <laughs> the yes. wallflowers. And this brings me to my teaser from last week. <laughs> I knew that. I knew that. I remember that those songs were on the same soundtrack, or at mm-hmm. least it, it was come with me. It wasn't, yep. it wasn't exactly uh casual, uh-huh. but yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I, that was my tie in. I was going to bring that up, but yes, those yep. are both on. Those are the one, two punch of the Godzilla 1998 film version. Correct. I believe that's with Matthew Broderick. If yes. I'm not mistaken. Yep. So. Directed by Roland Emmerich. Mm-hmm. And uh, not on Spotify. I had to go to YouTube to hear that oh. puffy version of song. And yeah, it's pretty much like Cashmere with Puffy going, uh-huh, yeah. On instead, of, with me. Uh, <laughs> instead of, you know, getting, you know, that stuff going like, oh, come along. You know, you get like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> get the thing over they did that, all the, yeah. So They did that on SNL, too. I remember Jimmy Page and Puff Daddy did that on SNL. Uh, it was pretty, it was a pretty good performance, <laughs> I have to say. So Robert yeah. Plant, much more appealing coming in off that riff than Puff Daddy was. Indeed. That's my takeaway there, yeah. Um, Trampled Underfoot was the only um, single released on this album. That was the A-side single with Black Country Woman as the B-side. I thought that was interesting. Mm. And the album was very successful, debuting at number one in the UK and three um, in the US album charts. It went to number one a week later in the US and stayed there for six weeks. It was also the first album to go first ever album to go platinum on pre-orders alone and after their release all of their previous albums re-entered the top 200 on the billboard and they went on another north american tour and this was the first band to ever have six albums on the billboard charts at the same time wow so that's (laughs) that's, pretty good yeah so they were popular um critics love this album as well as as fans 
Jim Miller of Rolling Stones saying this is possibly the best band in the world, or at least the only one that could rival the Rolling Stones and the Who in terms of live performance. The album cover was originally uh, was originally a die cut cover, who, meaning there are who cuts. Who is Jim Miller? Out of curiosity, I've never heard him before in our critic. I don't know. I mean, he was. <laughs> I didn't look to see what his. I mean, he was there okay. when when uh, you know, when it was out. So, gotcha. But yeah, he's not like the other famous people that we've talked about. He's no Stephen Thomas Earlwine. <laughs> he's well, I know Banks. Robert. <laughs> I know Robert Criscow always has hated Led yeah. Zeppelin. It's like what he's known for. Yeah. So uh, the album cover is originally a die cut cover, meaning there are cuts in the windows where you can see different things and you can put different things behind it. The one of the inner covers of Physical Graffiti spelled out the uh, name of the album physical graffiti with a letter in each window and then there's other ones with images you know various pop culture images like members of the band dressed as women uh, balls aldrin queen elizabeth lee harvey oswald the pope king kong you know random shit basically the album was uh originally supposed to be released on november 29th of 74 but again there are delays in the production of the album cover um which i feel like came up before in one of their albums and so finally came out in 1975 to answer john's question physical graffiti was called that because of the graffiti on the cover of the album and also Mm. jimmy page said quote there was an awful lot of physical energy used in producing the album. So not very, that, not really that interesting in my opinion. Wah, but, wah. <laughs> I know. I, it's like, I was like, what makes the graffiti physical graffiti <laughs> as opposed to just graffiti? So, yeah. Okay. Robert Plant said this album represents the band at their creative peak and is, and it, it's his favorite album. Jimmy Page also said that it was a high watermark for the group. And this, since this is the last time that we talk about Led Zeppelin after we talk about um, our reviews of the album, I'll give some some follow up and, uh, you know, close them out, essentially. So, Johnny boy, what did you think of uh, Physical Graffiti? Well, boy, this was certainly a heavy album, wasn't it? Boy, <laughs> it was, it was yeah. uncompromisingly heavy. I was somewhat shocked. I um, It's been a long time since I've gone through the the Zeppelin discography. And Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been a long time since I've listened to physical graffiti. Um, I don't think I ever processed how heavy it was. Like I knew I liked it. Uh, I, I, my two, you know, you have like sort of thumbnail notes that you make to yourself of the things you describe to someone. And I, my take was always with uh, this album was some of their best stuff and a little bit too long. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I'd say it's, too long in the sense that it was bothersome. Do I feel like the second half wasn't as strong as the first half? Um, I, I went on to see like how this broke down. There's a side one, two, three, and four. And, mm-hmm. and the parts that are identified as side one and side two, I would say, um, are by far the strongest in my opinion. Side four is interesting to me because there's some, there's, there's some songs like the wanton song and um, black country woman that kind of do a little bit different than what, Led Zeppelin sounds like sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, side three, in my opinion, is probably the weakest side. Um, uh, but it was interesting to hear you say that some of the stuff was recorded real time and some was older. Did you say it was like from 70, 71? From, uh, 
anytime between 70 and and 72 i believe is what it's so we're yeah. so they were recording this stuff when they were doing the the number albums so that would yeah. have been around mm-hmm. three and four right yeah would three four been, and houses of the holy it's all, all in holy, that okay. period yeah yeah okay so that's interesting i'd be curious to see which songs line up there because i i could have told you that like custard pie is not tied to any of that time because right that that is uh that's a really good song first of all i'd like to point out it's probably <laughs> yes. my favorite song on the album and cashmere also is not tied to that time you can tell sonically and some yes. of those songs are really um heavy like in a way that i don't think of led zeppelin being is that heavy you know i'm not gonna say they're like black sabbath sludgy heavy but they're heavier than i'm used to for um led zeppelin i i, I do think this does represent like a Led Zeppelin at that period in their career where they've mixed like the energy and all the things that are great about listening to a really good band in their early stages mixed with like what happens when you get a level of professionalism later in your career, like a Mm -hmm. sonic tightness. Uh, They definitely have that. Uh, But you know, some bands, they, they kind of fade out after that early period and Zeppelin has definitely not faded out. They're still vibrant and have a lot of new ideas uh, like at this stage of their career, but it's merged with like a, a growing maturity, I think, and tightness, I would describe, mm-hmm. um, that, that sounds like a band that has become big and has played live and has recorded a variety of albums and kind of knows artistically what they want to do. Um, I would be, I still am fascinated about why they decided to merge new tracks with older ones instead of just putting the older ones on sort of a, um, cause like later in their career, um, is it Coda? Is that the name of the album Coda. where they take all their yeah. outtakes, right? And and do I'm surprised they didn't do something like that with the the older stuff um, from that period. Not that it's obtrusive in the album, but it's just it's interesting that that it's like a half and half album. It's it's mm-hmm. a really interesting construct for an album, especially where they're at in their career. But uh, yeah, I, I Robert Plant always sounds great, but he sounds particularly vibrant on this album. Uh, lyrically yeah. um, he's not just vocal tricks as much on this album I feel he's a little bit more of a, a well-rounded singer um, I've always loved his voice but he's got a little bit more tone and depth I think in this album um, and yeah the guitar work from Paige is fantastic in this album once again it always is solid and the, and the rhythm section certainly from uh, Led Zeppelin always stands out um, you know John Paul Jones is is always considered one of the better bassists and, and Bonham. Mm-hmm. Some people will say they think he's the best rock drummer ever. But to me, this is a, um, a Jimmy Page album um, more like as a standout more so than some of the others. Uh, not cause he hasn't done great guitar work in the other albums, but mm-hmm. that's the, that's the jump off the page sonically from this. It is a, it is a lead guitar album. Uh, that's my initial thoughts. I can expand, but I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Yeah. How about you, Matt? So I think that Led Zeppelin is a really good band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I I think they're a really good, good band. Yeah, I think they really are. Um, this kind of a is, hot take, Matt. Yeah, I know, I know. Sorry, guys, just don't don't murder me. You know, like, uh, um, so I this is a, this is an interesting album because I knew because just listening to it, this is a good example of recognizing many of the songs you know mm-hmm. this there wasn't a ton of surprises on here but also never really being aware of, the, of their names so when i hear a song like in the light or you know 10 years gone or the wanton song like i know these songs but i don't i'm like i never knew that was the name of the song you know mm-hmm. so it's kind of interesting to, it's like oh that's on this that's on this um 
I love this record. This might be my favorite Zeppelin album. And I, 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 I it is long. I don't think it's too long. <laughs> um, and I would go so far as to say maybe this might be my favorite double album that we've covered. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. Exile is up there as well. Um, but I'm trying to think of another double album that's this consistent. And I, mm. I, I, I don't know if you Derek guys could... the Domino's album, I would personally put up there. I know you guys had different views of it. I, no, I like that album a lot. I would still, I would put this above that. That was, yeah, I guess that was a double album. Okay, that was a pretty solid one, um, but I, I still like this one definitely. Yeah, I thought better. about that too. Maybe the Elton John album, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah Goodbye yeah. Elbert Gray. That's, good that's good too. It's not this, you know, yeah. I, but I, I, yeah, I think this might, and I think uh, I probably, I might like this. It's a good question if I like this better than Exile. I think I think this is a really consistent album. For a double album, I think it's it's really um, uh, consistent. And I disagree, John. I think I like the second half better. I think that mm. this actually gets better as it goes along. I think the variety, I think there's it, it is heavy, but there's variety on here, you know? And you're also not getting, and John, I would, I would think that you would like to appreciate this more because there's not a whole lot of the gnomes and wizards and, you know, like <laughs> no, medieval I, sounds of yeah, this Yeah, I greatly appreciate. Well, yeah, because they do things like Eastern sounds, right? At different yes. times and mandolin. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what they yeah. substituted out, which... Yeah, was a good good choice for me personally. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's like of all the Zeppelin sounds, I think that's really the only one that's kind of missing on here. So there's the variety. I love that the, the end of this stuff. That like Boogie with Stu and Black Country Woman were really nice surprises, really nice throw-ins there. Um, I really liked uh, what is it? The Seaside. What, down what by, was the down by the seaside. I thought that mm -hmm. that sounded like a band of horses song. You know, there was a lot yeah. of, I, I was having a lot of tie-ins to some modern acts and modern artists that certainly, obviously, you know, it's not like they influenced Zeppelin, but like that you could see that influence from Zeppelin on them. But Downside by the Seaside sounded like kind of like a band of horses, you know. Like um, all country almost folk, at times. Yeah, like folk yeah. rock kind of thing. And um, and for sure, the I, I in my time of dying, that's got Jack White all over it. I mean, that's like, you know, that's just I, yeah, a very a lot on this. heavy Jack White influence type song. But this was just great. And the songs, I think the song, it's interesting that you're kind of differentiating. These were the songs that were older and these were the ones that were more recent. That list of songs that you had that were the more recent ones are probably the, some of my most favorite ones on here. You know, In yeah. the Light was a great, 10 Years Gone is a great song. There's a lot of cool guitar riffs on here that are not like the flashy solo guitar riffs it's just this is just the guitar riff that's going to sustain the song throughout the majority of the time that we're playing it and it's just got really it's just really cool guitar parts that are kind of unique that are definitely that that stand out as just being immediately you know uh engaging i think yep. um so you know songs and of course cashmere is a classic song I mean, that just that that album never that, that song never gets old and the way that it builds and there's the two different parts and there's like a part right around the four minute four fifteen four twenty mark minute where like they transition from like the from from like the kind of the more upbeat or, or lighter part but then they and then they and then plant's voice takes you into the the dun -dun 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 -dun, and it kind of carries over that that part is awesome that just that that might be my favorite part of the record it's just like a really well done transition um that just uh that just really stands out but there's not a weak song on here i love like the brawny or whatever that's you know that yeah. instrumental uh that's a cool part it's a little quick you know 
uh, uh, Jimmy Page, uh, you know, get, uh, acoustic guitar riff that's yep. kind of cool. But yeah, I think the variety really stands out here as well, and it's just it's solid, man. This it's a long album. It doesn't it doesn't play like a long album. It's an album that's so good that I get lost in in the length. You know, it does yeah. that doesn't bother me at all. So this is a very high. Uh, you know, I always thought that Led Zeppelin Four was my favorite album. I, it, that the highs on that still might be my because I, I I still love Stairway and I still love um go uh, not going to California, but uh, when the levee breaks, I think might be my mm-hmm. other favorite uh, Zeppelin song. But this is this album stands out amongst the other ones for sure um, as as being up there for me. But just great riffs, um, really good songs, really good variety, maturity. I think too is a word that comes to like some of because the, the later songs are. There's a there's a maturity uh, a mature sounding quality to it that um, might be lacking in some of their other uh, stuff. So, yeah, very surprised at how much I like this because it's it just it never it never got old. So a big thumbs up for me. I really liked it. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you guys. Every time I listen to a Led Zeppelin album for this show, I feel like okay, is this my favorite album now? Or is it, mm-hmm. you know, every every subsequent one has something that I haven't heard before or or I'm revisiting and forgot how good it was. I I was like, John, I was like, if it was just the first, uh, you know, LP side of the album, the first six songs, I think that would be like a perfect album, basically. Mm-hmm. The um, But then as I listened to it more on the second half, I really kind of appreciated the the nuances that they bring and kind of the the exploration and depth that they have brought to their sound. Um, I can't take full credit on this, but they incorporate, you know, things like the clavinet is now on in their songs a lot more and the Moog synthesizers in the, or in some of these songs. And like you guys said, bringing that middle Eastern prog sound into their songs. It's almost like beetle Beatles esque in, in the light, for example, like those things are weren't there in those earlier mm-hmm. albums that were yep. all like predominantly guitar driven and and the four of them. So they're really branching out and adding these things, which like makes adds a depth to their to their album. I think in a maturity, like you said, Matt. So I mean, I think the Rover is probably one of my favorite songs yeah, after good. listening to it so many times. It it just has this. So first of all, I think I'm a sucker for any drum lead-in on a song where it starts with the drums and then they come in. That just kind of hooks me right in. And then Paige's guitar is, is pretty out of this world on that song. Like like you said, John Custard Pie is a great... They really like bring the blues rock um, you know, foundation into that as like kind of a, a centerpiece and a great opening track. The, um, you know, they... You know, even though they experiment with all these other different things, um, they still have that blues background, and that's throughout on this album. And I and I always love this. Trample Underfoot has this really funky sound to it, which is due to the clavinet, I think, and that's something we haven't heard oh, from, that that is? Okay. from Led Zeppelin before. And then, um, and Braun, it's pronounced Braun E. Um, Iyer, which it's Welsh. Um, that's. Um, I enjoyed that as well. It it does, it is their only um, sim- acoustic number on this album, but it fits with their previous kind of acoustic sounds on 
on other albums. Um, and a fun fact about that, this is the last time an entirely acoustic track appears on a Led Zeppelin album. Mm-hmm. Down by the Seaside really reminded me of Neil Young and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and yeah. kind of that West mm-hmm. Coast rock sound, which is Laurel something we haven't, yeah. Yeah, we haven't heard from Led Zeppelin before. And then um, Night Flight has the Hammond organ on it as well. So they are, they're just, you know, they, they sprinkle in these things. And if you, you know, because we listen to these albums and we've kind of gone through this progression of looking for these instruments and stuff, I really picked up on it this time listening to, to them. Um, fun fact about Boogie with Stu, that is um, Ian Stewart from the, formerly from the Rolling Stones on piano in that song. And that's named after him. And um, that's got that, that country beat. So gosh, if I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to say, I really love this album. I, also agree that this is probably my favorite double album maybe ever if i had to i'd have to look at a list of double albums to know for sure but the um i really enjoyed the i i love the first half um the first lp and i really enjoy the second half so it's it's splitting hairs at this point i I kind of love all of Led Zeppelin's albums there hasn't really been a weak yeah. one I, and, even uh, even comparing it to something like the White Album which I love but the White yeah. Album's got some filler on it man the White Album is you know it's got some stuff that's true. That you, you, not even talking about Revolution 9 there's some stuff on there that's like eh but this is just like straight up top to bottom like really good yep and and like like you guys and John said it's still the, these all four of them are just so good at what they do the drums are amazing on this the bass is great and and john paul jones is playing all the different keys as well um on this and then um plant's voice is like so mature and just like i think it's like peak he just knows how to utilize his voice to like maximum effect mm-hmm. and then pages of guitars which is i think the one thing that always uh, is the thing that always brought me into Led Zeppelin is is just as guitar riffs and there are some bangers on here for sure um so any other any other thoughts before I wrap up um them with some other facts and and thing John did you have anything else you wanted to add no I just thought it was a really interesting evolution of Mm -hmm, Led Zeppelin I think this is also considered the last great Led Zeppelin album right the the other two sell well but this is the last um of that murderer's row of mm-hmm. six straight, like hugely yeah. well-regarded albums. Yeah. 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 There's, there's not a, um, I mean, this is a band that's like, it's, it's like talk about the, 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 the cool or the en vogue thing to do is to like the Zeppelin t-shirts and posters and college dorms and like this, you know, the band, the cool band to like, and, but there's a reason for it there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like as you know, just kind of before this podcast, it was kind of just knowing them kind of here and there having access to like basically one album, you know, and, and hearing songs there, but it just really, really getting into it has been awesome. They're, they're, there's a reason that we're talking about them like this. They're that freaking good. It's just, yeah, they're very, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, enthusiastic thumbs up for me on, on not just this album, but just up their entire, all the albums that we've covered up until then. There's not a bad album there for no, no way. Mm-hmm. So in August of uh, 1975, Robert Plant and his wife got in a serious car accident and he was unable to tour as a result after that. Um, for a stretch after that um, they wrote much of their material for their next album presence um, titled presence during that time period that album was released um, but they did not tour in 1976 either um, 
Presence was released in March of 76, and then they had a concert film and live album also come out in September and October of that year called um, Song Remains the Same. And at that point, they were the number one rock band in the world, outselling the Rolling Stones in terms of sales. In 77, they set an attendance record by the Guinness Booker World Records at the Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit for 76,229 people, the largest for any band ever up to that point, according to Guinness World Records. And then on uh, July 25th, 77, while on tour in the U.S., Robert Plant unfortunately found out that his five-year-old son, Carrick, had died of a stomach virus while he was on tour, canceling the rest of the tour um, immediately. In November of 78, they recorded In Through the Outdoor in Sweden, which I don't think we've had any artists record in Sweden before. They played some tours in Europe um, in the summer of 80. And then, unfortunately, on October 25th, 1980, John Bonham was found dead at 1.45 p.m. by their new tour manager and John Paul Jones. Um, The cause of death was asphyxiation from vomit, and um, he didn't have any other drugs in his system. He as we've alluded to or said, you know, he has a history of alcoholism and, and heavy drinking up to this point. He was drinking heavily the day before. He was placed, you know, taken to bed and placed on his side when he uh, went to bed that night, but hmm. he was found dead the next day. Um, the planned tour was canceled um, after his death, and the band decided to disband. And they released a statement on December 4th, 1980, saying, quote, We wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we cannot continue as we were. Quote, signed Led Zeppelin. The final album that they released was called Coda, as John mentioned. It was released in 82, and it was basically a collection of tracks that were floating around on bootlegs that um, hadn't been released before. Um, and then finally, you know, all three of them um, have continued to have careers. In fact, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss just put out an album recently that's getting some critical acclaim. Um, they've all had various side projects and, you know, are, are very well respected at this point. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995. And that concludes the Led Zeppelin story for mm. us. So there we go. Yep. A huge band. Of the late 60s and 70s. It's kind of crazy when some of these bands come to an end, right, in our run with them. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Beatles yeah, I'm sad. or when Hendrix <laughs> did or, you know, I think we're doing the, done the Who now too, right? We're yeah. not doing anymore. So a lot of those big staple bands. Uh, we've got a little bit more Stones left, but um, yeah, the page is truly, the, no pun intended with Zeppelin, <laughs> but the page is truly turning, isn't it? It is. And for my money, one of the most consistent bands that we've discussed, you know, as we said, six of their albums are all fantastic. And there's not many other bands that we've talked about, you know, the Beatles and and a few others that are um, can say that. So it's easy to see why they were so popular. And and maddening to be like, how did the critics just continually, (laughs) you know, like how does Robert Criscow sleep at night, like shitting on Zeppelin that much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'll tell you about it. (laughs) I'm sure he will. Yeah. Yeah, You can read about it. Yeah. All right. So, Colas and Hot Takes next week. Hey, John. Bill, uh, should I billboard him? Josh (laughs) is taking over my job, and now I'm going to billboard. Is that what's going on there? I've got got it up. I I was just confirming that. I'm I'm going to build. 
I'm gonna billboard this <laughs> okay, week. Are you guys it. ready? Yeah. And I'm I want ready. I want Matt's immediate reaction to some right. of these. I don't right, have it got, in front of me, so I, I don't know go. what we're doing. So we've got the Runaways, a band that Ooh. spawned many famous uh, acts after it was Cherry Bomb. Yeah. You got it. So with their debut album, The Runaways. We've Is got that Lita Ford and Joan Jett and three other girls. Correct. Yes. Do you know yes. do you know any of the three other girls? Who else is that? I off the top of my head I do not. I know they made a movie about them. Kristen Stewart. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she was in yeah. She was in the movie, but she was not oh, in the right. original runaways. She was okay. like negative fifteen years old yeah, or right. something like that. That's it, yeah. Uh then we've got the band Shoes with black vinyl shoes. Um, nope. which spoiler alert I actually did listen to today because I had a little bit of time so I will not give away anything oh man but that was I interesting. don't know them at all <laughs> I own shoes I like shoes there you big go. fan of shoes nondescript name band name yeah. shoes we have uh, Dennis Wilson he was in a pretty famous band mm. uh, you might have heard of called oh, yeah. Beach Boys we're gonna get his album Pacific Ocean Blue huh so when did uh, when did Dennis Wilson die I, I guess I'm surprised he's, he's I want to say the early 80s I oh think. really okay I can't remember which one of the Wilson brothers drowned it was him uh, it was him I think right yeah, yeah so I, I think that was the early 80s if I remember correctly yeah so. Wow, is this uh, is this is he uh, collaborating with Charles Manson on this record? I do not know. I mean, okay. Charles Manson's way in jail by this point. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is he? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, that's true. Jail. Right. Right. This okay. Seventy-seven. So yeah, this yeah. is way later. Uh, and then the band Suicide uh, with their debut album Suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, we get the Ramones for the first time. We actually get Rocket to Russia before we do the Ramones debut, which okay. is interesting because Rocket oh, to Russia is their second album. Okay. So, yeah, we'll do that. And then uh, we get our first look at um, Elvis Costello, My Aim is True. Ooh. And then we finish with the nope, Talking that's Heads. That's it. That's it, John. That's, oh, that's that. Okay, gotcha. Yep. This is the least amount of listening time I can remember in a long – I think – the six albums on this coldest and hot take actually have a, a lesser running time than our three albums this week, <laughs> yeah, primarily right. due to the Led Zeppelin album. There, right. none of them goes more than uh, uh, the Runaways album is forty-eight minutes, but none of the rest of them are more than thirty-seven. So, um, well, you've got like the Ramones and Suicide and Elvis Costello. Right. It's all like you know short punk song type songs, right? Like two-minute, three-minute songs at best. Yeah. Well, Dennis Wilson's not writing punk. If I, I'm, if I'm no, I didn't guess, say I him. Heard that album. I said oh, okay, suicide gotcha. and Ramones and Elvis. Oh yeah, yeah. So fair. Matt and the other members what? of the Runaways: Sandy West, oh. Mickey Steele, who joined the Bangles, and Cherry Curry. Oh, so famous. There was a Runaway was also a Bangle. Yep. I did not know that. That was a good. That's go. a good piece of trivia. Okay. We'll talk more. Uh, in a week, uh, but I think probably now is as good a time as any to sign off. So, as always, uh, we'd love to hear from you in terms of comments on the YouTube page, email, hit us up on Twitter, follow us on any of those platforms. We'd love to have your presence affected. Uh, for Matt and Josh, this is John. Have a wonderful uh, week and weekend, and see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Combing the Stacks podcast. We're now available to be liked and followed on 10 unique platforms including Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Feedback is welcome at combingthestacks at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at the handle at combingthe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks.